welcome. Come in. Join me by the fire, won't you? Yes, have a seat in that comfy chair. I have many stories to share. Here, on the fear of the mind Look out into the street. You see anybody? 
No, sir. There's just a... Uh... What's that? Oh, that's only the old cheap musician, sir. He doesn't mean any harm. I won't have that tune played, you hear? I'm used to getting my orders obeyed, and I'm going to have this one obeyed. Here's some money. Go out and tell him to go away. Yes, sir, if you insist, but... Uh, Do as I... you're told and don't ask questions. If anybody wants me, I shall be with Mr. Wilmot. Very good, sir. Sit down for a minute. Oh, not at all. Pull up a chair. Have some coffee? No, thanks. I'll get down to brass tacks right away. Yes, you you always do. I've noticed that. Well, I'm a pretty self-sufficient kind of a fellow, Wilmot. I made a name for myself, even if I do say it myself. But, well, the fact is, I need advice. Hmm. A successful publisher asking advice from one of his own authors. That's something new, isn't it? Now, look here, Wilmot. I'm serious. All right, all right. I take it back. What's on your mind? You've studied what we'll call the supernatural, haven't you? I've lectured and written books about it, yes. And did you ever meet a, a ghost? Mm, no, I can't say I ever did. Have you? It might only be my own imagination. Yes, that's what scares me. You get on in years, and your arteries harden, and you don't take enough exercise, and you think something ought to be done about your waistline, but you never bother. You see, Wilmot, I went to a funeral yesterday... You did? Whose funeral was it? The person who died has nothing to do with this. It was old Simpson of Harley and Sons. We thought it was only decent to make up a party and go to the funeral. And I took my secretary along, a girl named Molly Carroll. I'm leaving for Washington tomorrow. Besides, I'm moving house. So there was a lot of work to do. What I couldn't stand was that infernal cemetery in the rain. And we must have gone in by the wrong gate because we were in a neglected desolate part of the cemetery where the rank grass grew over the grave. You'll oblige me, Miss Carroll, if you first find out the proper directions about places. We've come in the wrong gate of the cemetery. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Templeton. I thought... What you thought doesn't matter now. This is the wrong part of the cemetery. My shoes are absolutely ruined with wet clay. Well, it isn't doing my own shoes and stockings any good either, Mr. Templeton. If there's been any damage to them, Miss Carroll, I'll replace them. You never found me ungenerous, now, have you? Well, not exactly ungenerous, no. I'll pay you the compliment, Miss Carroll, saying that you're the best secretary I ever had. Thank you. Yet you want to leave me. Y yes, I... I want to get married. That's what Mr. Barnes is telling me. And who is this paragon of yours? What does he do? Does he make any money? Well, Frank's a radio technician. He's not very wealthy, I'll admit. Wealthy? A radio technician? I bet he doesn't make as much as I pay you. Yet you want to get married. Well, is there anything very strange about that? Yes, if it interferes with your career, if it... Good Lord. Look at that. Look at what, Mr. Templeton? Over there, where I'm pointing. You mean that? It's only an old gravestone covered with weeds and brambles. I haven't seen that grave in years. It looks rather neglected. It is neglected, isn't it? Will you go closer, please, and read the inscription? Mr. Templeton. Do as I tell you, please. It says... Let's see if I can get some of these weeds aside. It says... Sacred to the memory of Mary Ellen Cleaver. Born September 5th, 1892. 
departed this life, March 25th, 1919. Thou shalt still be adored as this moment thou art. Let thy loveliness fade as it will. If you lower that umbrella, Mr. Templeton, you'll get soaking wet. Sentimental crash. But she always liked it. She always liked it? Mary Ellen Cleaver. Did you know her? Very well indeed. She was my wife. Your wife? But, but I never knew you were married. Neither did anybody else. Where's my flask of brandy? What have I done with it? It's in your hip pocket, Mr. Templeton, but do you think that's very wise? You've already had more than enough. Whatever I do is wise, Miss Carroll. Well, we were married very young. She was a nice little thing. I was fond of her, yes. But, but she couldn't have helped me. I'm not a snob, but she wasn't in my class. No style, you know, no manners, no, no education. Indeed. Could I have introduced her to the friends I was making? No. Wouldn't have been kind to her. She didn't even want to go to the places where I was invited. She'd sit at home and say, What was it like? Did you have a nice time? What was Mrs. So-and-so wearing? And she loved me. I'll put that to her credit. But... You left her? I thought it was the kindest thing to do, yes. She went away. Then I heard she'd had... Had what? Nothing. Doesn't matter. Well... There was a war on, and I attended the peace conference in Europe. I never even knew she was dead until I heard some friends had buried her. I always promised to call her up. And she said she'd come back to me if I did. Uh, you couldn't call her up now, Mr. Templeton, even if you wanted to. No, I suppose not. But I was fond of her. I wish there was something I could do. But you could have her grave cared for. Have some flowers put on it. That's it. That's an idea. She'd have liked that. Can you take care of that for me? I'll look after it tomorrow morning, Mr. Templeton. But how will they ever be able to locate the grave? There must be thousands in this cemetery. Well, each grave has a number, you know. Cut into the stone so you can identify it. This is number 1212. 1212. One, two. Sounds like a telephone number, doesn't it? Yes, doesn't it? Meadowsale 1212. Poor girl. I was fond of her. Please, Mr. Templeton, come along and... And please, no more brandy. You've got a funeral to attend. And then, Wilmot, the night came. And the horror. What horror? Take it easy, man. There's nothing to worry about. You were sitting here in the Cosmopolites Club. Yes, but I wasn't sitting in the club last night. I was on my way home. And why should that scare you? I don't know, but it did. I'd been jumpy all day. That infernal number kept running through my head. Meadowdale, one, two, one, two. Have you ever seen my house? Yes, it's that big sham gothic place on Riverside Drive, isn't it? Yes, big and dark and drafty like a mausoleum. I told you it was moving house to an apartment downtown. But there were some papers there. I had to get out of the safe in the library to take with me to Washington tomorrow. I knew the servants would be gone, of course. But I hoped Mrs. Bloom, that's my housekeeper, would still be there. Then, when I went up the path, about 6.30...
Sorry to trouble you, Mrs. Bloom. I seem to have mislaid my key. The other could have sworn I had another key ring this morning. It's no trouble, Mr. Templeton. Only, I hope you're not planning to spend the night here. No, I'm going to a hotel. Why do you ask? Because they've disconnected everything except the electricity and taken away most of the furniture. They haven't touched anything in the library. No, sir. I told them you said to leave that. Uh, but it does seem a pity in a way. What seems a pity? To break up a lovely home like this after all these years. Home? This big, ugly picture gallery? It's been a home to me, sir. Well, I've treated you generously, haven't I? Yes, sir. I'm sorry. I've got several hours' work to do, Mrs. Bloom. A whole safe full of papers to sort over. I'm going to the library and... What's that you're hiding behind your back? I'm not hiding anything, sir. All the same, what is it? It's only a music box, sir. I found it in the attic when the moving men were here. If I hadn't known there were, well, no ladies in your life, I'd have said it belonged to one of them. I love to hear them, sir. May I? Bloom. Yes, sir. If you don't want me to smash that music box, turn it off. Yes, sir, I'm sure I never... I'm going to the library. If you can find any sandwiches and coffee, bring them. Yes, sir. Excuse me. Same old library. Same old clawfoot desk. There's the Venetian mirror she bought for you. Look at yourself in the mirror, Templeton. Admit you can't face it. Admit you can't work here tonight. Admit you've got to have lights and music and... That's it. Go out for dinner. Telephone Wilmot. If they've left the phone... Oh, yes. Good. Here it is. Hello, hello. Yes, sir. Come up, please. I, uh... I want, uh, Meadowvale 1212. Meadowvale 1212. Wait, what's the devil's name am I saying? Change that, I want. Hello, my darling. I knew you'd call me when you needed me. Who's that speaking? Who are you? It's Mary Ellen, dear. Don't you recognize my voice? You're not Mary Ellen. This is a trick. Mary Ellen is dead. Yes, dear. But the dead sleep lightly. And they can be lonely, too. And now that you I don't need you. I don't need anybody. I'm coming back to join you, dear. It's not easy, but I'll be there by the time the clock strikes seven. I'll wear a veil because I don't look very pretty. I won't have this. I won't listen to you. I I won't. Bye, my dear. Remember, when the clock strikes seven. Mrs. Blue, Mrs. Blue. Templeton, what on earth is the matter? Who's been playing tricks on me? Tricks, sir, I don't understand. Who spoke to me on this phone? But, sir, nobody could have spoken to you on that phone. Nobody could have? What are you talking about? That phone's disconnected, sir. Disconnected? Yes, sir. The man came here this afternoon and took that little metal box off the wall and rolled all the wires up and put everything on the desk there. Said he'd be back tomorrow to take it away. Mrs. Bloom, that's impossible. Look for yourself, sir. You're standing in the middle of the room holding that phone, and the wires don't lead anywhere. That's true. So you couldn't very well have talked to anybody on the phone that wasn't connected? Now, could you? I tell you, I got the operator. I heard it ring. I talked to... to someone else. Oh? And what did that person say? She said she'd be here to visit me when...
that's what happened last night. The phone was disconnected. It was Mary Ellen's voice. There's no doubt about that. Am I out of my mind or, or what? Before I say anything about that, my friend... Well, let's hear the end of your story. What did happen when the clock struck seven? I don't know. You don't know? No, I lost my head. Ran out of that house as though the devil were after me. Maybe he was. And since then? I spent the night at the hotel. Today, I've walked past that house 50 times, 100 times, trying to muster up enough nerve to go in. I couldn't do it, but I've got to go in there. Why? It's those papers I've got to take to Washington. Send somebody else to get them. I can't do that, Wilmot. It's confidential information for the government. I've thought of everything. I've even bought a revolver, see? For the love of heaven, man, put that gun away. You want the other club members to think you have gone insane? Then I thought of you. You know all the tricks of fake spiritualists. You've written about it and lectured about it. Ah, Which reminds me, by the way, that I'm lecturing before the Acropolis Club in about 20 minutes. You've got to break that engagement, Wilmot. Why? Because you're going with me to my house tonight, now. That's impossible, old man. Now sit quietly and listen to me. I'll go with you willingly tomorrow morning. That's too late. I'm taking an early play to Washington. Well, then wait until I can get away from the lecture. Say, uh, around midnight. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take a taxi and join you as soon as I can. That won't do. I've got to know. Know the answer now. You understand? Aren't you being a little unreasonable about this? Unreasonable or not, I usually get my own way and I mean to have it now. Well, then I'm afraid you'll have to go to the house alone. Besides, you know, Wilmot, you worry me. You sit there puffing at that pipe and looking at me out of those queer eyes of yours like a, like a young Satan. I've often wondered what you were really thinking about. Since you flatter my intelligence so much, I was wondering whether you'd been quite frank with me. Frank with you how? About your late wife, Mary Ellen Cleaver. What about her? Well, after she left you, something happened that uh, well, you don't like to talk about. Was there by any chance uh, a child, a son, for instance? Or did you, did you say a son? Yes. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, then let's agree not to understand each other, shall we? Now, are you coming with me or aren't you? I tell you, man, I'll get there as soon as I can. All I can think about is the wet red clay in that cemetery. And the dismal grave in the rain. And what her face might look like if she raised the veil. And what am I going to see in that house? What am I going to see in that house? hours dwindle. The traffic roar of the city sinks to a low growl behind twinkling lights. It is midnight when a taxi moves along a certain street towards a certain house out of a bygone age. Lightless, black against the stars, surrounded by iron railings and with a path bordered by fir trees leading to the front door. Look, too, at the face of Mr. Patrick Wilmot when that taxi draws. All right, driver. This is the place. I'll be in waiting, sir. No, you needn't wait. Keep the change. Thank you, sir. Good night. Hmm. So the front gate is open, and he did go in. And <laughs> I beg your pardon. I didn't mean to bump into you, Mister Wilmot. 
You know who I am. Oh, yes. I've seen you several times at our office. I'm Molly Carroll, Mr. Templeton's secretary. What are you doing here? Well, it's Mr. Templeton. What about him? Well, that's what I want to know. I was out with Frank, that's my fiancé, and when I got home, the girl I room with said that Mr. Templeton had been phoning and phoning all evening. She said he sounded drunk or something. He, he wanted somebody to go with him to this house. Evidently, I wasn't the only person he applied to. Shall we go in? Yes, but, but the whole house is dark. Suppose he isn't there. He's there, all right. You don't know men like Bert Templeton. But I... I'll push the gate wider. Now, straight up the walk to the front door. I've got a flashlight. What are we going to find? Something rather unpleasant. I'd better warn you. How do you know? I have my ways of knowing, Miss Carroll. Oh, look. What is it? That, that French window to the left of the front door. Yes. It's partly open. Well, there's nothing in that, necessarily. Templeton said he'd lost his key. He might have had to open a window. Oh, that's true, but... So you see it, too, do you? See what? There's a footprint across the sill of that French window. A footprint made in wet clay. It's like... like the clay of the cemetery. So I should imagine. Will you go in first, or shall I? Into that dark room? I will not. Well, then stay here, please, until I get some lights on. No, wait. I'll go. Let me take your arm. All right, be careful now. Hmm, yes, I thought so. This room is the library. And there are more footprints of somebody or something walking in. They leave. Who's there? Who's there? It's only me, sir, Mrs. Bloom, the housekeeper. Then what's the idea of standing in a dark room in the middle of the night with what sounds like... It's only a music box, sir. I left it behind along with some other things and came back to get them. I've got my own key. I thought I heard a noise in here. But why aren't there any lights? The electricity's cut off, sir. It was cut off today. I see. Uh, Templeton is here, or was here. He, he must have had some kind of light. If I turn this flashlight on the desk, maybe... <coughs> Be quiet, Miss Carroll. What is it, sir? I'm as blind as a bat without my glasses. It's Mr. Templeton. He's lying on the floor beside the desk. Oh, he isn't... No, he isn't dead. But his face is the color of putty. I think he's had some kind of stroke. We'd better not take any chances. Mrs. Bloom? Yes, sir. Get outside to the nearest telephone and call for an ambulance. Tell him it's an emergency case. You're Mr. Wilmot, aren't you? But but what happened to him? Ask a dead woman. I beg your pardon. Never mind. Hurry. Of course I'll hurry, Mr. Wilmot. What are we going to do? Well, let's have a look around. Templeton seems to have been working at his papers by the light of a couple of candles, which somebody's blown out. We'll relight them. There's the desk. There's all the papers scattered oh, round him. Mr. Wilma, please. What happened to him? I'll tell you. As he sat there in the dim light of two candles, a ghostly figure appeared at that French window. It wore a long, old-fashioned skirt and a heavy black veil to hide the face. It walked toward Templeton, cracking graveyard clay. It stretched its arms to him like this. Keep away from me, please. Templeton couldn't stand it. He collapsed. And now, before the old housekeeper returns, would you care to hear how the whole trick was worked? Trick? What trick? Have you heard about the ghost voice that talked on a disconnected telephone? Oh, yes. Yes, he, he said something about it this morning, but I, I, I thought he wasn't himself. He wasn't, but he heard it. Remember Mrs. Bloom's story about the telephone man? Yes. 
They don't send a man round to yank the whole apparatus off the wall, put it on the desk, and say he'll be back for it next day. This man from the telephone company was an imposter. The man from the telephone company was an imposter? Exactly. Oh, oh, look, he's moving his hands. He's trying to open his eyes. Isn't there anything we can do for him? No, there's nothing we can do till the doctor arrives. In the meantime, listen to me. All right. What did this imposter do? He took away the real phone and substituted a spirit telephone. You don't know what a spirit telephone is? No, of course not. It's an old device used by fake mediums. You see a telephone without wires standing on a desk like that one. You pick up the receiver and talk to the dead. Of course, you never really talk into the phone at all. But if you don't talk into the phone, then... Fixed underneath the desk is a tiny microphone with hidden wires leading to another room in the same house. That microphone picks up every word you think you are saying to the phone. Is that clear? I think so. Now, the dummy telephone is really a low-power radio receiving set. Somebody in another room can talk back to you after hearing what you say on the wired microphone. Then, Mr. Templeton... If Templeton hadn't rung Meadowvale 1212, then rest assured that same number would have rung him. Well, then the scheme couldn't fail either way. But, you see, there's one thing in this matter I haven't got quite clear even yet. And what's that? Tell me, Miss Carroll, just why did you work this whole trick? Why did you try to scare your father to death? My father? Templeton is your father, isn't he? That might be rather difficult to prove, Mr. Wilmot. By George, I admire you. Thanks very much. I'm flattered. Expressionless as ever. Eyes as hard and cold and blue and, and handsome as... Well, make your own comparison. But I knew you were guilty, of course, when I heard your fiancé was a radio technician. You can leave Frank out of this. Oh, you have scrupled. Have I touched you? Nothing can touch me. Not since my mother died. Your fiancé installed the ghost mechanism and took it away today. He probably thought it was only a joke. He did. I swear he did. And the rest of it was plain enough. Who led Templeton to the wrong gate in the cemetery, past that woman's grave? You did. Who was the only one who could have stolen the key to this house off that key ring he took to the office? You were. You needed that key to come and go as you liked and impersonate the two voices on the phone. Is there any need to go on with this? He killed her, you know. You mean... Templeton killed your mother? Oh, not with a knife or a bullet or poison. All he did was break her heart. And that's no offense in law. Yeah, steady now. Well, I've done what I wanted to do. I've torn his whole rotten life to pieces. And there he is, gasping for breath on the floor. And I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm gl Oh, God, forgive me. He is my father. Does he know you're his daughter? No. No, of course not. When I went to work for him as a secretary... He hadn't even seen me since I was a child. But I got near him. I worked for years to get near him. No. I wish I hadn't. Now, look here. You've got to pull yourself together. Why? Who cares? The ambulance coming and maybe the police. What do I care? Tell the police what you like. My dear girl, you don't think I'll tell them anything. I'm merely an onlooker. An amateur Satan who doesn't believe in ghost voices. Mary Ellen. What's that? Templeton, his eyes are open. He's trying to get up. Mary Ellen, Mary Ellen, Mary it's Ellen. As it's as though he, he could see something that we can't What's see. What's that he's got in his hand? It's a revolver. He had one at the club. He's putting it against his oh. chest. I'll stop him. Look out. Look out. Oh, he did love her after all. And now he's tried to join her. Oh, don't let him die. Oh, he's all right, Molly. You grabbed the gun just in time. If he doesn't die, I'll make it up to him. I swear I'll make it up to him. I tell you now, he's not going to die. But... Mary Ellen. Mary Ellen. What? Mary Ellen. But what? But what? Mary Ellen. I was... I was just wondering. 
Is there a ghost in this room tonight? Starring Walter Hemden, Susan Hayward, and Lee Bowman. Tonight's tale of suspense. This is your narrator, the man in black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next Tuesday. Miss Hayward appeared through the courtesy of Paramount Pictures, and Mr. Bowman appeared through the courtesy of Metro Golden Mayor Studios. William Spear, the producer, John Deet, the director, Bernard Herman, the composer, conductor, and John Dixon Carr, the author, collaborated on tonight's suspense. Broadcasting System. Returning in 2023, June 3rd, Eden Springs Amusement Park and Campground, it's Ghost of Rama. Ghost of Rama is back, second year after our triumphant first event in Pawpaw. We're now headed to the Eden Springs Amusement Park and Campground in Benton Harbor, Michigan. That's right, train rides for kids, Comic Con car show. A paranormal group's meet and greet, live entertainment, food vendors, regular vendors, fun is to be had by all. Come and check us out at Ghost of Rama in Benton Harbor, Michigan, at the House of David Amusement Park and Campground. The event begins from 11 and goes till 7 p.m. with an after hours ghost hunt of the haunted hotel and remains of the restaurant on the property and of the property. $25 per person. That's right, $25 per person. No one under 16, please. That's Ghost Rama, June 3rd. Mark your calendars from 11 to 7 at the Benton Harbor House of David Amusement Park and Campground. We'll see you there. Live entertainment provided to you exclusively by unrestrictedradio.com. Awesome music lovers are listening to Unrestricted Radio. Check out Unrestricted Radio at unrestrictedradio.com and download the Unrestricted Radio app today. Unrestricted Radio. We play the bands that other radio stations should be playing.
Hey, you listening to this podcast, I've got a message for you. If you've drank the rest, now drink the best. Gun Barrel Coffee. We are the Gun Barrel Coffee Incorporated team. We are united by the love of coffee, guns, freedom, and America. What started as a hobby has turned into a high-quality home-roasted coffee enjoyed by family, friends, and now the public. We are proud to donate a portion of our proceeds to the organizations who support those who serve, those who protect and defenders of our rights and freedom. Accept no other substitutes. You've had the rest. Now drink the best. Gun Barrel Coffee. You can find the guys at GunBarrelCoffee.com. This is the Big Dog, and I want you to know that you're not alone. The team at the National Runaway Safe Line is here for you, offering a range of support services 24-7. For the hotline, call 1-800-RUNAWAY or 1-800-786-2929 to speak with a trained NRS staff member or volunteer who will listen and support you. If you are a victim of child abuse or are thinking of running away to escape an abusive home, call now and you will be helped. The number again is 1-800-786-2929. August 19th, it's ghost Rama at the Van Buren Courthouse Museum in Hartford, Michigan. This event is free to the public. It's a paranormal meet and greet, Comic-Con, monster car show, food and drinks will be available, vendors of all shapes, sizes, and colors, and of course, live entertainment. And that is provided to you by UnrestrictedRadio.com. Ghostorama, August 19th, Van Buren Poorhouse Museum in Hartford, Michigan. The event goes from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. with an after-hours ghost hunt of a location to be announced. That's $25 per person, no one under 16. Ghostorama, we hope to see you there. Performances in The Lady Vanishes, and in the stage production The Watch on the Rhine, you will recall with pleasure. Tonight's tale of suspense is a story by John Dixon Carr, Fire, Burn, and Cauldron Bubble. If you've been with us on these Tuesday nights, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series are tales calculated to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation and then withhold the solution until the last possible moment. And so with Fire Burn and Cauldron Bubble and the performance of Paul Lucas and the other members of our company, we again hope to keep you in. Drury Lane Theatre presents the distinguished American actor Myron Willard in Shakespeare's Macbeth 
with magic effects especially designed by Ludwig von Arnheim. Historic Drury Lane Theatre. A relic of old London. On this site, in the cramped and crooked lanes of Aldwych, there has been a playhouse since Nell Gwynne sold oranges in the pit. The present theatre, though modernized, is heavy and darkened with time. By daylight, it is a dinginess of red plush seats, haunted by old ghosts. But at night, when the lights bloom for some new production... When the murmur of a crowd fills the carpeted aisles and the orchestra begins to tune up, it is kindled with that strange magic before the rise of the curtain. Put this way, sir. E12 and 13. Program. Pocket. Thank you. No, madam. This is Rowie. Your seat for G4. And backstage, where nerves crawl and there is a tendency to scream, the three witches of the play are huddled around the peephole in the curtain, looking out into the audience. They are hideous-looking creatures, these witches. In gray rags like cobwebs. But as they speak. Oh, dear, I am scared. Don't let it bother you, darling. You can't even see the audience when the floats are on. There's nothing to worry about. Nothing except the size of the take at the box office. You won't even have to worry about that tonight. Look out there. You two are shaking as much as I am. Now don't pretend. All right, all right. Everybody's jumpy on first night. What I can't understand is why they want to use young girls as witches. And then make us talk in cracked voices as though we were 80. Double, double, toil and trouble. Fire, burn, and cauldron bubble. Oh, what's that? Katie, darling, it's only one of the ghost effects. You've been hearing it for weeks at rehearsals. I will say this for Marin Willard, as an actor and a manager, too. He's the first one who's ever had a real professional magician to do the ghost effects for this ham show. Oh, are they Celia? Look there. Where? Out in the audience in the second upper box on the left-hand side. Oh. Don't you see the woman who's just coming in? Yes, I can see her. Not a bad-looking bit of goods for her age. What about her? But that's Marcia Blair. Marcia Blair? You don't mean you've never heard of her. I can't say I have either if it comes to that. Move over, Ivy. Give us a squint. Marcia Blair used to be Mr. Willard's leading lady. She was a very great actress 15 years ago. Oh, 15 years ago. She's had a terribly romantic history. Well, she's made lots of money and retired from the stage. Then she married some horrible no good. And do you see that tall gray-haired man standing beside her? Well, he doesn't look much like a no good. That's not the man I mean, Celia. That's Howard White, her second husband. Oh. They say he loved her for years and followed her about and practically worshipped her. But she was married to this no good and wouldn't get a divorce. Then the no-good died, I suppose. So Marcia Blair and her faithful Howard got married. Yes. I remember reading in the paper that they've been married one year tonight. I... I expect they're very happy. Well, I'd be happy, too, if I had a mink coat and a string of pearls like that. Well, you've got to admit she's beautiful. All right, Katie, if you say so. I used to go and see her act when I was a little girl. She... she was kind of an idol. I wonder what they're saying to each other up in that box now. I wonder what they're saying. 
Arthur, dear. I wish you wouldn't be so uneasy. Nothing can happen to you here. You're uneasy yourself, Howard. Yes, I suppose I am a little. Howard, I know I shouldn't be talking like this on our first anniversary. But that's what worries me. What if Barry isn't dead? What if he isn't dead? Oh, listen to me, darling. Your late husband, heaven condemn his soul, died in New York more than a year ago. We have proof of that. Well, then who wrote those letters to me? I don't know, dear. Somebody playing a joke on you. Joke? If you marry him, Marsha, you won't be alive a year from then. Joke. But you're married to me, my dear, and you are alive. Shall I quote you something from another play, Howard? Well? The Ides of March are come. I, Caesar, but not gone. And it's still two hours. Two hours to the time we were actually married. Oh, look here, dear. This is carrying an obsession too far. It would be just like Barry to wait until the last moment, just to make it worse. You knew him. Yes, I knew him. He was a genius. I suppose so. As a mere businessman, I've never quite understood this theatrical temperament, oh. except yours, of course. Barry was a greater actor than Myron Willard will ever be. Barry could play anything, from a cockney to King Lear. His skill at makeup wasn't merely good. It was terrifying. Oh, Howard, I am frightened. Suppose he's managed to get close to us tonight, and, and yet we can't see him. Well, the music started, Marcia. I, I shall have to go. Must you go, Howard? Really? If I break this appointment with Ferndale, dear, the deal will be called off. And since I haven't got too much backing anyway, I... All right, dear. I understand. Go ahead. Unless you wanted to come with me. And Miss Myron's opening tonight? Oh, I couldn't do that. I tell you, you'll be perfectly safe here, dear. Of course, Howard. I know that. You're in full view of 3,000 people. Nobody could attack you. The only door to this box is guarded. Outside that door will be Miss Fenton, who's devoted to you. And the chauffeur who's even more devoted to you. What could happen, dear? Nothing, of course. And I'd prefer to be alone anyway. Yes, I rather guess oh, that. Oh, please, dear. It's just that I can't endure anybody being with me when I'm watching a great play. But that doesn't include you, darling. Then, if you'll accept these, madam, in honor of our first anniversary... Oh, Howard! Well, they're lovely. Of course I'll accept them. And here's a program. Got everything else you need... Yes. Yes, I think so. I just opened the door to the passage to make sure our watchdogs are on guard. Yes, they're out there, all right. Good night, Marcia. See you in an hour or two. Good night, Howard. And good luck. Miss Fenton, Bradley. Yes, Mr. White. Yes, sir, anything wrong? Miss Fenton, you've been my wife's companion secretary for five or six years. Yes, Mr. White, and I've loved every minute of it. And you, Bradley... You haven't been my chauffeur for quite so long, but they tell me you're an ex-wrestler. That's right, sir. Champion of the Shoreditch Athletic Club. And in me prime, though I says it shouldn't, as good a man as ever climbed through the ropes. Now, you know your instructions, Bradley. You trust me, sir. Nobody gets into this here box tonight unless it's over my dead body. Nothing must happen, do you understand? Nothing. Please, you're as white as paper. As for you, Miss Fenton, I'm afraid it's a little awkward. I know I ought to ask you to go in and join, Marcia, but... Oh, you needn't apologize, Mr. White. I know she doesn't want company. She'll be leaning forward with her elbows on the box rail, just as she always does. She isn't merely watching a play. She's acting, Lady Macbeth. Every line, every gesture. Oh, and I don't mean to disturb her. You, you won't leave this door, either of you. You trust me, sir. If... Hello? Well, anything wrong, Bradley? It is a very rummy-looking cove coming along the passage, sir. Wearing a big black cloak with a red lining. Oh, that man, Bradley. 
That's only Herr von Arnheim. He's a professional magician and escape artist. I was just wondering... Excuse me. Don't worry, Mr. White. We'll look after her. Von Arnheim. I see Von Arnheim. Thou canst not say I did it. Never shake the gory locks at me. I beg your pardon? <laughs> and I beg yours, my friend. I was merely quoting a line from the play. You are not leaving the theater. Surely not walking out on Macbeth. I'm afraid I've got to. Oh, that's a pity, my friend. You will miss some of my best effects, to say nothing of Shakespeare's. <laughs> when Banco's ghost appears at the table... I don't want to hear any more about ghosts, thanks. Banco's or anybody else's. I imagine you mean your wife's late husband. You've heard about it, then? Yes, your wife has told me a good deal. She seems to think that in my profession I might have some charm over demons or spell against ghosts. You know, Van Arnhem, in a muddled kind of way, that's what I've been wondering myself. Uh, unfortunately, no. I am all too human. But your problem interests me. And I confess it worries me. Worries you? What about me? As I understand it, her first husband was a half-mad American actor who later went completely mad and died in New York. His, uh... Oh, what's the word I want? Our obsession? Uh, that's it, obsession. His obsession was Marcia Blair's eyes. Yes, always her eyes. They seemed to hypnotize him. It is not new, you know. You'll find the same motive, the eyes of a beautiful woman, all through the works of Edgar Allan Poe. Then, as I understand it, after this man's death, she began to receive a series of letters. Foul letters. Apparently written by him and threatening her with some rather horrible form of death if she married you. I tell you, Barry Lake is dead. He can't get up out of his coffin. Oh, getting out of coffins, my friend, is not so difficult. I have done it myself. Oh, please stop joking, Van Arnheim. You don't happen to be dead. True. There is that small difference. Um, is your wife here in the theater tonight? Yes. She wouldn't have come here except that it's Marin Willard's first night. We haven't seen Marin, either of us, in years. She's back there in box mm, D. So I hear. Uh, I was hoping uh, that you might invite me to share the box. Uh, look here, old man. I, I don't want to seem inhospitable, but... Uh, she doesn't want company? Well, that's about it. Well, then walk back a little distance with me, this way. So that we can see the stage from the back of the dress circle. Now the orchestra has stopped and they'll ring up in a moment. There. Look at it. Look at what? The stage, man. The lights have gone out. All except the dim yellow footlights shining at the curtain. The last cough, the last murmur, the last rustle of program dies away in one vast breathing hush. The curtain goes up. Let go of my arm, Von Arnheim. I've got to leave. Now, what are the stage directions? A desert place. Thunder and lightning. Enter three witches. When, indeed, I wonder. I beg your pardon, Van Arnhem. Do you no, speak? No, it was nothing.
London newspapers for that year, 1936, you may read how Myron Willard triumphed at Drury Lane as Macbeth. But tonight, as the clock ticks on, there is another drama in the dimly lighted corridor outside Box D. There sits Miss Louise Fenton, Marcia Blair's companion secretary. Beside her, burly and broken-nosed, is Big Jim Bradley, the ex-wrestler. And when more than half an hour has passed... There's the applause, Jim. That'll be the end of the first act. Yes, I hear it. Nothing's happened. And take my word for it, nothing's going to happen. Oh, she's such a likable person, Jim. And I think one of our greatest Shakespearean actresses. I don't much care for this Shakespeare business, Miss... You give me a good movie with gangsters in it. It's my style. Oh, you don't understand, Jim. I've seen her as Juliet, as Rosalind, as Portia, in our own drawing room without any props. I've heard her as Lady Macbeth, too. <laughs> you should see her eyes. Her uh, eyes, Miss? Yes, you should see her eyes when she delivers that speech. The raven himself is horse that croaks the fatal end. Hey, Miss, look there. Well, what is it? That foreign-looking cove in the black cape coming along the passage now. Easy. I beg your pardon. You are Miss Louise Fenton, aren't you? Uh, yes, my name is Fenton. What is it? I am looking for Arnheim, a friend of Mr. White's. And I must see Marcia Blair at once. No, you don't, Governor. You're not going in there. Why not? Because nobody goes in there. Not if it was the king himself. That's orders. Now, listen to me, both of you. When the lights went on, I happened to be looking at Box D from the other side of the theater. And I think yes. there is something wrong. But there can't be anything wrong. Jim Bradley and I have been sitting here the whole time. Except, of course... Except when? Well, except when I went in there for a few seconds. You went in there, Miss Fenton? May I ask when that was? Well, it was after Mr. White had gone and just before the play started. I went in to ask if she wanted anything. She said she didn't, so I came out again. And Bradley's been with me all the time, except when he went to get a drink of water up the corridor. That's just too much gospel, Captain. One moment and listen to me. Marcia Blair is leaning forward across the railing of the box. Oh, but that's nothing, Herr von Arnheim. That's the way she always is. Does she always fall forward with her arms held straight out and her head down on her arms? You better be careful, miss. It's a trick. Trick? Why not open the door and see for yourselves? Would that do any harm? No, I... I suppose it wouldn't, but... Oh, there must be some mistake. We haven't heard a sound from in there. There couldn't be anything wrong. You open the door, Miss Fenton. I'm going to hold tight to this gentleman, just in case. Quiet, please. Quiet. What is it, Miss? Oh. Walk in there with me, both of you. Please go carefully, as though nothing were wrong. You don't want to attract attention. Now. Oh, help on, on high. There's blood all over her face. Yes. And don't begin screaming again, Miss Fenton, when I tell you she's dead. Bradley? Uh, yes, sir? Pick Miss Blair's body up and carry her out into the corridor. In another minute, we'll have the whole theater wanting to know what's wrong. All right, sir. You win. But what about the people in the other boxes? Won't they see? They've gone down to the bar to get a drink. They won't see anything. Hurry. Uh, uh, she ain't no lightweight, the poor lady ain't. Uh, steady, does it? Hold the door open. That's got it. Now, close the door. Shall I put her down on the floor, Governor? Yes, better do that. I never took those threats seriously. That's what I blame myself for. And if something did happen, 
Well, I, I thought he'd attack her. I never thought he'd hide away across the theater and fire a shot. And you were quite right, Miss Fenton. Marcia Blair was not shot. She... She wasn't shot. No. Take a look at the wound. Oh, I can't look at it. She was stabbed. Stabbed through the right eye oh. with a narrow, sharp blade, which entered her brain and killed her instantly. Not a pretty death, but a quick one. You seem to know a lot about this, Governor. Perhaps I do, my friend. And perhaps I can guess a lot more. You mean somebody stood out there and threw a knife at her? Like a ruddy music hall turn? No, I don't mean that either. There's no knife in the wound and none in the box. The murderer took it away. It took it away? Exactly. Herr von Arnheim, please wait. You're not saying someone climbed up from outside, 20 or 30 feet from the floor, and stabbed poor Marcia in full sight of 3,000 people? That, Miss Fenton, is what the evidence seems to indicate. But it's impossible. Yet it happened. There is Marcia Blair's body. What's that? Oh, it's the warning bell for the second act. People will be coming back here anyway, any minute. What are we going to do? effects by Ludwig von Arnheim. Very few persons knew that there is a dead woman in the theater. But at the end of the play, it is a different story. The crowd files out past a cordon of police. The lights are extinguished. The great theater is dark and mumbling with echoes. See the stage now? Only the battens or overhead lights pour down a pale blaze on two men who stand grotesquely against the background of Dunsinane Castle. One of these men is Howard White, very near collapse. The other is Myron Willard himself, still wearing his makeup still wearing helmet and chain mail. And when Willard speaks... Howard! Howard White! Confounded man, can't you hear what I'm saying? Excuse me, madam. This is almost finished. Oh, not that I'm blaming you, old man. Thank you, madam. It's traditional, you know, that Macbeth's an unlucky play. But up to the very end, I thought I'd never done better. Eleven curtain calls. No, twelve. Uh, how did you like my tomorrow and tomorrow speech? Hmm? I'm sorry, madam. I'm afraid I didn't hear it. Oh, I... Yes, poor old Marcia. She'd have hated to die like that. Marcia was proud of her eyes. Always nearsighted as an owl, but too vain to wear glasses. Uh-huh. There's Von Arnheim looking at us from under the castle archway. Von Arnheim! Did you call me, my friend? 
You're rather difficult to recognize under all that Macbeth makeup. Yes, I was just thinking the same thing. Uh, never mind that. Uh, where are the police now? At the moment, Mr. Willard, the police are in your dressing room. They are using it for questioning. Ah. No reception tonight, of course. No, but I thought you might be interested in two items of information that police have just discovered. Well, go on. We had a fairly full house tonight, I believe. Fairly full. Every seat was reserved. Reserved, yes, but not occupied. I don't follow you. One box on the ground floor, box E, to be exact, was empty. Reserved and paid for, but empty. And box E, oddly enough, was just underneath the one occupied by Marcia Blair. Well, all the same, I still don't see quite what you're... Now, our next item of information comes from an usher. And outside, I see it in the stores, very close to that empty box, was occupied by a very curious stranger who arrived late in the dark and slipped out again by a nearby exit a few minutes afterwards. Just one moment, Von Arnheim. Are you saying this stranger climbed up and attacked Marcia in full view of the audience? No, my friend. The murderer did not approach from that direction. Then he must have reached Marcia through the door, guarded by Bradley and Miss Fenton? No, not from that direction either. Confound it, man. It must have been one way or the other. Not necessarily. Don't tell me how. Don't you think I've got enough troubles already without this nightmare on top of it? Help on Arnheim. Help on Arnheim. Oh, you must take it easy, Miss Fenton. You must not excite yourself. Have the police been... Yes. Pre- Look, you've got to help me. They won't believe me. They won't believe the young lady, sir, and that's a fact. I tried to help her all I can, but... There's things I can swear to and things I can't. You see, I did go into that box. Oh, just for a couple of seconds, I admit it. But no other person went in or could have got in. So they say, or at least they're hinting that I killed her. But I swear I never touched her. Who was questioning you, Miss Fenton? Inspector Grimes or Sergeant Blake? I'm... Well, I'm not sure. The sergeant, I think. Then I shouldn't worry if I were you. Inspector Grimes knows better. He's guessed, in fact, exactly what I have guessed. You seem on rather familiar terms with the police, my friend. I am, Mr. Willard. I am. Anyone who practices escapes from handcuffs, sacks, chests... And stage boxes, perhaps. Stage boxes, if you insist. Excuse me. Isn't that Inspector Grimes in the wings now? Yes, and he's nodding his head. Then I can tell you, I think, what you want to know. Well, if you do happen to know anything, it's your duty to speak up. Poor Marcia seems to have had some ridiculous idea that her former husband, Barry Lake, was still alive. Her fears weren't justified, of course, and she wasn't killed by any dead husband. I beg your pardon. Her fears were justified, though not quite in the way she believes. And she was killed by her husband. Then Barry Lake is still alive. No, Barry Lake is dead. You don't mean Marcia was really killed by a ghost. No, I mean she was killed by her devoted second husband, Mr. Howard White. You don't hear what they say. That's not true. It's a slanderous statement. I'll have you in court for it. Everybody knows how devoted I was to Marcia. Your devotion, my friend, was devotion to her money. And your business affairs have been shaky for a long time. That's not true, and you can't prove it. Marcia Blyer was inclined to be, shall we say, a little close-fisted with money. That's true, anyway. It's a lie, a lie. willing to marry him, but Mr. Howard White knew he'd never touch a penny unless he killed her. He wrote the letters himself. Help on Arnheim. He can't be guilty. She was alive after he left the box. He wasn't anywhere near her when she died. Perfectly correct, Miss Stanton. He wasn't there, and yet he killed her. Exactly. But you and Bradley can supply the clue that will hang him. Uh, Me, sir? I don't know nothing. No, I don't either. I think you do, if you'll put your mind to it. Do you remember what Howard White said to her just before he left the box? Uh, Yes, he said, Good night, Marcia. See you in an hour or two. And she answered, Good night and good luck. No, I mean just before that. I... 
Well, there wasn't anything. You see? It's a slanderous statement without any proof. It's an insult to my position on the stock exchange. Wait. I do remember something rather queer. Think, Miss Fenton. Think. He said to Marcia jokingly, if you'll accept these, madam, in honor of our first anniversary. And Marcia said, Howard, they're lovely. Of course I'll accept them. That's right, sir. He did say it. And what do you think he was referring to, Miss Fenton? What was he asking her to accept? Well, I imagined it was flowers, a corsage or something like that. Did you see any flowers in the box or pinned to Marcia Blair's gown? No. I come to think of it, I didn't. Then what did he give her? Don't look at me, sir. Now, here is a woman who is very nearsighted, yet refuses to wear glasses. But she can accept a pair of... Opera glasses. Miss Lie, you can't prove it. Hold on, sir. Go, you better stay here, Governor. Thank you, Bradley. But the place is surrounded with police. But I still don't understand. Now, what happens when you lift opera glasses to your eyes and they are not in focus? You turn the little wheel in the middle to bring them into focus. For Marcia Blair, it was deadly. You mean the, the glasses had... Yes, they were specially constructed glasses, Miss Fenton. They were invented by a French criminal years ago. That little wheel is a little trigger. It releases the spring of a sharp, thin blade which strikes through the eyes into the brain. Oh, don't, please. You can't prove it. Marcia Blair died instantly. The glasses torn from her eye by their own weight dropped over the box rail to the carpeted aisle below. The only witnesses who might have noticed would have been the people in the box just underneath. And that box was empty? By arrangement, yes. Even if anybody did see them fall, Howard White was prepared to remove the evidence instantly. You haven't forgotten the curious stranger. Curious stranger? I mean, the man who slipped in after it was dark, took an aisle seat just under the box, and slipped out again a few minutes later. It's a pack of lies from start to finish. You can't prove a word of it. I beg your pardon, my friend. Didn't you see Inspector Grimes nod to me a moment ago? Well, you are going to hang, my friend, for one of the neatest and cruelest crimes in my experience. The police have just found those opera glasses with a neat set of fingerprints in the side pocket of your motor car. So ends Fireburn and Cauldron Bubble, starring the distinguished actor Paul Lucas. Tonight's tale of Suspense. This is your narrator, Ted Osborne, the man in black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next Tuesday, same time, when Nancy Coleman stars in Fear Paints a Picture. William Spear, the producer, John Dietz, the director, Bernard Herman, the composer-conductor, Robert Salmon, studio technician, and John Dixon Carr, the author, collaborated on tonight's Suspense. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.
This is the man in black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Our leading lady tonight is Miss Nancy Coleman, one of Hollywood's most powerful and resourceful young stars, whose performances you may have admired in King's Row, the current Warner Brothers picture, Edge of Darkness, and other noted films. The story called Fear Paints a Picture is tonight's tale of suspense. If you've been with us on these Tuesday nights, you'll know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series are tales calculated to intrigue you, stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation, and then withhold the solution until the last possible moment. And so it is with fear, paints a picture, and Miss Nancy Coleman's performance, we again hope to keep you in suspense. There is a picture hanging on a wall. You look at it casually. An extraordinary picture, you will say, skillfully done. Look at those fine brush strokes, those superb colors. But isn't the subject matter a little bizarre? It is something more than just bizarre. But let us begin from the beginning with the death of Benjamin Powell, a rich and strange man. There were dark rumors about the Powell. His wife had died many years ago. No one knows how. But Benjamin Powell had a daughter, Julia, a high-strung and neurotic girl. And many of us wondered about her, too. Benjamin Powell died, and in his last will and testament, he made Julia heir to all his considerable fortune, except that... But let me read you the will. I, Benjamin Powell, being of sound mind and in full possession of all my faculties, hereby request that after my death, my daughter Julia live with Mr. Harvey Lyons, my lifelong friend, until her... 23rd birthday, at which date all my worldly belongings will come into her possession, provided that nothing untoward happens to her by that time. But in the event that she is incapable of taking over my estate upon her 23rd birthday, I hereby appoint Harvey and Lord Lyons as my final heirs, there being no other living blood relatives, and trust to their judgment that they will take care of Julia adequately and with kindness. Signed, Benjamin Powell. Three months later, seated around the huge, ornate fireplace of the dark wainscoted living room, are three silent people. The heavy drapes that run from the high ceiling to the floor move softly in a gust of wind. The past quarter hour, no one has spoken. Harvey reads his newspaper, Laura knits with nimble fingers, and Julia, Julia stares with unseeing eyes at an unopened book. You're not reading, Julia. I'm not concentrating. Are you feeling all right? I'm all right. You do look a little tired, Julia. Perhaps you'd better get some rest. I'm not tired, Harvey. I've, I've been wanting to ask you. In a week, Julia will be 23. Isn't that wonderful, Harvey? Next Tuesday's her birthday. We'll have a party. I'll get old Tom and his fiddle and we'll have a real old-fashioned party. Harvey, what did Father mean by the will? 
the will? Julia, perhaps you'd better go to bed. You look a little pale. The will said I might not be able to take over the estate by my 23rd birthday. What does it mean? I, I don't remember that. I didn't read the will very carefully. Yes, you did, Harvey. You know what I'm talking about. Perhaps we'd better discuss it in the morning. You're tired. I'm not tired, Laura. Please, Julia. I'd rather you wouldn't ask me. That's a delicate handkerchief, Julia. Twisting it will only tear the lace. I'm sorry. I, I didn't realize it. It's one of your best handkerchiefs. It's no use, Laura. I've got to know. You're a very high-strung girl, Julia. And I'd rather not upset you before bedtime. Upset me? You sort of get moody very often, Julia. Harvey. Laura, I'm not going to bed until I find out what all this means. I've got to find out. You, you don't like your room, do you? No, I don't. It's too big. The wallpaper. I don't like the pictures on the wall. There's nothing wrong with a big room. Everyone prefers a large room. Everyone likes pictures on the wall. Well, maybe it's the kind of pictures. Yes, it's the pictures. They, they rub me the wrong way. You see, your feelings about things are different. Different from the feelings of normal people. Normal people? Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't... I can't stand this torturous way of telling us. I'll tell you, Julia. Your mother died in an asylum. She went mad after her 23rd year. It's been in the family for generations. I never saw my mother. I, I thought... We didn't want to tell you this. I wish we hadn't, but you forced us. You mean... I'm liable to become... insane... Well, you see, any one of us can become insane. There's, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm perfectly all right. I'm as sane as anyone. Being high-strung doesn't make me mad. I I don't like it here. I, I don't like this house. I'm sane. I, I'm sane. Of course you are, Julia. There's nothing the matter with you. You'll be all right. Your father wasn't sure, that's all. You're as sane as any of us. Come along. I'll take you to your room. We'll have a cup of tea together. How is she, Laura? She's calmed down. Is she asleep? No, Harvey, she's reading. That must be Dr. Barrows. I'll open the door. Hello, Dr. Barrow. How do you do, Mr. Lyon? Come in, come in. Thank you. This is my wife, Laura. How do you do? I'm glad to meet you, Doctor. Let me take your things. The maid will have your room ready in a few minutes. That's very good of you. Here, sit down and make yourself comfortable. Thank you. Well, how are you? She's been very moody lately. Very moody. She seems so unhappy. I've tried to draw her out, but I haven't been much good at it. Is she still uh, grieving over her father's death? No, it isn't that. I, I don't think she likes our house. She has some queer ideas about her room. And the wallpaper. She doesn't like that. She doesn't like the pictures on the wall, either. I've caught Julia several times staring into the mirror, looking at herself with hate. Mm -hmm. I've heard her talking to herself very often. That's nothing. All of us talk to ourselves once in a while. I don't know, Doctor. I don't think she's very stable. There are things that go on in her mind that she won't talk about. All of us keep things to ourselves, things we never talk about. Mr. Powell described Julia's case to me just before he died. I've had occasion to observe her just once. Oh, you knew Mr. Powell, did you? Oh, yes, for quite a number of years. I treated his wife, poor Mrs. Powell. She went mad. Started somewhat the same way as Julia. Oh, I wouldn't make that comparison. So far, there's no basis for any such theory. Well, then, let's say that Julia has strong dislikes. 
uh, took a hate to the pictures in our room. Pictures, eh? Um, I'd like to go up and see her. But she's not asleep. Well, I guess it's all right. She's not asleep yet. Her room's a second from the right as you reach the top of the stairs. Thank you. I'll just stop in for a few minutes. Come in. Hello, Julia. You remember me, don't you? No, not exactly. I'm Dr. Barrow, a friend of your father. I treated your mother. My mother? No, no. Don't be alarmed. I'm staying with your guardian for a few weeks. Do you mind if I come in for a few minutes? No. Well, this is a fine room, Julia. A very comfortable one. I don't like it. Too big, makes me uncomfortable. Nonsense. You're just imaginative. You think someone might be hiding in here while you're asleep. Is that it? It, it isn't that. Don't you like that picture, Julia? What picture? The one you're staring at. I, I wasn't staring at it. I just... Just looking at it, eh? Looks like a fine painting. I don't like it. I'm... I'm going to have it removed. It's kind of you like, Julia, but I don't think you should. It's an unpleasant picture. Gives me nightmares. Look at it. That frightful-looking man about to come through the doorway and, and the unsuspecting girl sitting in a chair with her back towards him. <laughs> He's not frightful-looking at all. It's just the black scarf around his neck. He's about to kill us. You certainly have a vivid imagination. I'm sure the artist had no such idea in mind. I hate the picture. I'm going to ask Harvey to take it out of here. No, Julia. You mustn't be afraid of it. The longer you keep looking at it, the less afraid of it you'll be. You've got to conquer your fears, or or they'll conquer you. Well, that picture has a horrible fascination for me. I can't take my eyes from it. Last night, I I dreamed that the man in the picture came through the door with a knife in his hand and killed a girl. It was an awful dream. But that was only a dream. If I take that painting off the wall, you'll find other things to be afraid of. Now, you do as I say. Forget about that picture. Get a good night's sleep. Nothing like a good night's sleep to lift your spirits. If that picture fascinates you, keep looking at it. Don't be afraid of it. Will you do that? Yes, Dr. Barrow, if you say so. That's fine. I'll see you in the morning. Good night, Junior. Good night. In this big rambling house of Harvey Lyons, midnight came and went. One by one, the lights went out. And soon the whole house was blackened by the cover of night. Not a single light gleamed from any window. Not a single from any window. Not a single thunderstorm. Julia's room, the large room with its many pictures. She was dreaming. Dreaming again of the man in the picture. The figure with the flowing black scarf is alive. His hands grow longer and longer. Julia tosses in her sleep as if trying to avoid him. Trying not to look at him. hiding in this room. The light. Where's the switch? Where is it? Oh, here. There's no one here. It's coming from the ceiling. From up above me. 
imagination. There's nobody there. There's aunt. Nobody. I've got to go back to sleep. Dr. Barrett and I need sleep. I... possible, Junior. Figures and pictures can't move. Of course not. It was just a bad dream. <laughs> I saw it. Come along, Julia. We'll all take a look at the picture. No, I, I don't want to go back no, into the room. No, no, no. There's nothing here. <laughs> You've got to fight off these delusions. Here, give me your hand. Come along. Well, now, what picture was it? The one near the bed. Oh, yes, the picture by Gregory. One of our one I saw him inside the room approaching the girl. Dreams can be very vivid. And I know footsteps coming from the store. I, I must be out of my mind. I, I could have... What are you Julia? All of us occasionally have vivid, realistic dreams. Once I dreamed I was being chased by a herd of elephants. It was so real I heard the thundering footsteps even after I woke up. It was so... Illusions can be very real you and horrifying. You do believe, don't you, Julia, that it was only a nightmare? Yes, I... I think so. If Julia wants to, I'll take the picture out of her room. I don't think it's wise. You have to fight these unreasonable fears. That's true, Julia. Never give in to them. Well, I, I'll go crazy if I keep looking at that picture. You'll get worse and worse, as Dr. Barrow says. Until you be afraid of your own shadow. You'll be afraid of everything. Of everyone you meet. Afraid to be alone. Afraid to be with people. Afraid of yourself. Afraid of your own clutching finger. No, no, don't tell me anymore. Please, Mr. Barnes, there's no need for this kind of talk. Julia, look at the picture. It's nothing but some paint on a canvas with a frame around it. There's nothing about it that can harm you. And the danger lies in yourself. You've got to keep staring at it as often as you can by candlelight or in the dark. Until you've learned to laugh at it. It won't be easy. I'll try. That's fine. I knew you had courage. I'm going to be able to sleep. I'll be all right in the morning. I'm sorry I became hysterical. And I'm sure you won't let yourself go anymore. I promise. You're sure you're not afraid now? No, I'll, I'll be all right. I'm sure I'll be all right. Well, Julia, it's 11 o'clock. You know what Dr. Barrow says. I'm not at all sleepy, Nora. I, I'd rather stay up for a while. I'm in the middle of a fascinating story. You run along. I'll go to bed presently. Is anything wrong, Julia? No, of course not. Everything's fine, Laura. You're afraid to go to sleep, aren't you, Julia? No, no, it isn't that. Is that picture bothering you again? Yes. Last night, I, 
I heard footsteps again. Sound woke me, and the figure in the picture, it moved. It moved closer to the girl. How terrible. Why didn't you call me? We thought you were over it. It hasn't bothered you these past three nights. Oh, I didn't want anyone to know. I took some sleeping tablets, and I fell asleep again. In the morning, the picture was the same as ever. That's a brave girl. Laura. Laura, do you think I'm crazy? Of course not. You're as sane as... As sane as I am. Tell me the truth. I must know. You're just nervous and high-strung, and you have a vivid imagination. That's all. You're trying to soothe me. Why didn't you tell the doctor that you thought the picture moved? I was ashamed. You shouldn't be ashamed. Dr. Barrow is here to help you get well. I don't think you are. Oh, that must be Harvey and Dr. Barrow now. Hello, Laura. I've arranged to have old Tom and his fiddle here tomorrow night for Julia's birthday. And I've invited the Grovers. They'll be delighted to come. That is, if Julia's feeling well. Julia, you should be in bed. It's after 11. She's afraid to go to sleep. Please, Laura. It's the footsteps in the picture again, isn't it? Yes, Doctor, it moved again. At least I thought it moved, but I... I went back to sleep. Well, that's an improvement. At least you didn't get hysterical and try to run away like the last time. You were all right for a few nights. It's come back. There isn't much I can do for you, Julia, except to tell you to go to sleep. Fight off these delusions. You've got to do that. Come, Julia, I'll go with you to your room. Well, perhaps you can sleep in my room tonight, Laura. Just tonight. I feel a lot more comfortable tomorrow night. I'll, I'll be able to face it alone much better. No, Julia, that would be an admission of defeat. All right, if you think it's best. Good night. Good night, Judah. Well, keep up your courage. It doesn't look so good, does it, Doctor? Well, not too good, but it's not hopeless. She has an unstable mind subject to delusions which become very real to her. Her obsession about the picture is not so bad. We all suffer occasionally from optical illusions. But hearing footsteps coming from the storeroom above her... Storeroom? How do you know there's a storeroom above her? Your wife told me. Oh, of course. Well, that storeroom hasn't been opened in years. I guess there's no point in investigating it, is there? I don't think so. Those footsteps, like the moving figure in the painting, are all in her mind. Her mother behaved just like that before she went mad, didn't she? Well, there's some similarity. Uh, you haven't been to the storeroom recently, have you? No, I just mentioned to you that it hasn't been opened in years. Oh, yes, so you did. Forgive me for not listening more closely. That's perfectly all right, Doctor. Well, I just hope that Julia will be well for her birthday party tomorrow. Oh, I had no idea she was having a birthday. How old will Julia be? She'll be 23. Well, I must remember to get her a gift. Oh. Uh, well, I guess I'll go to bed. So will I. I'll see you in the morning. But Julia wasn't thinking about her birthday. During the 10 or 15 minutes she spent in Laura's room, fear fluttered in her heart. When she finally stood alone inside her own room, panic, black, unreasoning panic began to take hold of her. In wild haste, she began to undress, never looking at the picture. I won't look at it. I won't. I'll go right to sleep out, take some pills and fall asleep. What was that? Oh. It was nothing. Nothing at all. All I have to do is keep from looking at the picture. I won't look at it. It can't do me any harm if I don't see it. I mustn't even think of it. I'll think about the trip I made to South America. It was a wonderful trip. The sunset. Oh, there. 
Stab me. I'm the girl. Oh, I've got to get out. out. It's no use. I've lost. Lost everything. Please, my sanity. I can't fight anymore. I can't fight against you and the black star. And now, you're here. I can touch you. I can feel you. It's real this time. What do you want me to do? No. I won't run away. I won't scream. Do I want to spend the rest of my life in an asylum like my mother? No, I, I don't. I don't. You're pointing at the window. You want me to open the window? Yes. I'll open it. You say it. It will be best for everybody if I jump. The only way out. The only way. I'll do it. I'll do it now without thinking. It will only take a moment. Julia! 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 How did uh, Laura? We came just in time. I've got her heart. Is she safe? I'm safe. You can come out from behind that chair, my friend. Friends. Come out or I'll shoot. I don't understand. My head is going around. Oh, I can explain everything. I was merely That's observing you. The procedure was a little unusual. I'll, I'll do the explaining, I... Dr. Barrow. You tried to drive Julia crazy. Tried to drive me crazy? That's right. You tried to do it with the picture. You're all making a serious mistake. Mistake? Look at the picture. The figure is inside the room, stabbing the girl. No, it wasn't your imagination, Julia. He painted several pictures, each one of them with a the figure close to the girl. He used the storeroom upstairs. That's why you heard footsteps. I got suspicious when I found a black scarf in his room. And when I looked at the picture a little while ago, it was full of dust. I dusted it off myself a few hours before. Yes, and Dr. Barrow seemed to know there was a storm above you. I couldn't understand how he knew that since it had been closed for years. But why? Why should he want to drive me crazy? Because he's not Dr. Barrow. He's Ralph Powell, your cousin, who disappeared many years ago. Everyone thought he was dead. After I got suspicious, Harvey and I went up to the storeroom and found a lot of pictures he's been painting. This scoundrel is a very talented artist. He's been changing the pictures on the wall. His plan was to drive you insane and then contest the will, since he's your nearest blood relative. Oh, horrible, and I really thought... I, I had no intention of killing Julia. I, I swear I didn't. I, I just wanted to frighten her. Almost jumped out of the window. I might have been dead. Right now, lying dead outside. Don't think about it, Julia. It's all over now. You're all right. I'm, I'm not insane. Of course not, Julia. Why? I almost forgot. It's already Tuesday. Happy birthday, Julia. How does it feel to be 23 years old? It feels wonderful. And so closes Fear Paints a Picture, starring Nancy Coleman, tonight's tale of... Suspense. Appearing with Miss Coleman were Edwin Maxwell as Harvey Lyons, Fred Mackay as Dr. Barlow, and Beatrice Benaderet as Laura. Columbia's program, Suspense. In our starring Hollywood cast this evening is Mr. Peter Lawrence. 
appears as a mysterious gentleman called George Ravel. Miss Wendy Berry plays our worried heroine, Marjorie. Mr. George Zuko is the lawyer, Alex Stevens. The story called The Moment of Darkness is tonight's tale of suspense. If you have been with us on these Tuesday nights, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series are tales calculated to intrigue you, stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation and then withhold a solution until the last possible moment. And so, with a moment of darkness and with the performances of Peter Laurie, Wendy Berry, George Zuko, and our other players, we again hope to keep you in... Suspense. Plan Bleu, crack express train from Paris to the French Riviera, which in these carefree days before the war used to make the journey from Paris to Nice overnight. At the Gare de Sud on this particular mild spring evening, the train with its glistening wagon lits or sleeping cars waits in a station filled with smoke and the iron coughing of engines. You can hear the excited crowd and the slamming of compartment doors. You can see the guard standing by with his watch in hand, with his horn ready to blow the signal. Au revoir, monsieur le voyageur! Au You better get in, Emily. The train's just about ready to start. Commotion there. In the last moment, just before the signal, a girl in a light summer dress, carrying a small suitcase, hurries along the platform towards car number 10. The girl is blonde and evidently English. And as she hurries towards the guard. Au revoir, Yes, yes, of course. Is this carriage number 10? Oui, mademoiselle, numéro 10. Hurry up, please. Thank you. I'll get in. Et Compartment number six. Compartment... Oh, here it is. Yes, come in. Mr. Stevens, I... Oh, oh, I beg your pardon. That's quite all right. Won't you come in? I, uh, I thought this was Mr. Stevens' compartment. It is his compartment. I'm sharing it with him. He, uh, he is on the train, isn't he? Oh, yes, yes. He's going to look for some luggage that failed to turn up. In the meantime, won't you come in and sit down? Thank you. As an old friend of Toby Stevens, why do you smile? <laughs> Nothing. It's just odd to hear a dignified man like Mr. Stevens call Toby. That's all. Well, it suits him. As an old friend of his anyway, may I introduce myself? I'm Ken Blake, on vacation from the American consulate in London. How do you do? My name is Gray, Marjorie Gray. I, uh, I most particularly wanted to have a word with Mr. Stevens. Miss Gray, will you pardon my impertinence if I ask... Ask what? Whether it's about your Aunt Hester at Monte Carlo and the man who seems so determined to scare her to death. Do you know about that? Yes, a little. 
After all, that's why Toby's left his law practice and come all the way from London. He said... Mr. Stevens. Marjorie. Scott, what are you doing here? I came up from Monte Carlo, especially to see you. I thought I'd find you in Paris, but when I got to your hotel, they told me you'd gone. Cook said they deserved a compartment on this train for you. So, well, here I am. But why? Before you see Aunt Hester, Mr. Stevens, I want to know what you meant by that letter you wrote me. I meant exactly what I said, Marjorie. I'm going to expose this faker, George Bell. <coughs> Excuse me. If you two want to talk, I'll just clear out of here. No, no, Ken. Stay where you are. Really, Mr. Stevens? You've made an impression on her, Ken. When the girl suddenly becomes thoroughly British after spending half her life on the Riviera, well, you made an impression. Don't talk like that, Toby. She won't get annoyed with you for saying it. She'll just get annoyed with me. Marjorie, this is Ken Blake. We've met. Thanks. I asked him to come along with me, and for a very good reason. Indeed? Ken was for years at the American consulate in Paris. He knows all the heads of the Surete General at the Scotland Yard of France. And in particular, he knows the great detective Flamond, who's the chef of Surete. I thought Ken might be very useful when we nab Ravel. But I tell you, Ravel is dangerous. Dangerous, my eyes. Something's going to happen. I know something dreadful's going to happen. Now, let's face the situation, Marjorie. Your Aunt Hester is middle-aged, wealthy, and... Uh, oh, if only Uncle Paul hadn't died. He was the decentest person I ever knew. But he did die, my dear. And Hester can't be consoled. She can't eat, she can't sleep, she can't think of anything except getting in touch with his spirit. Along comes this faker Ravel to give seances. I wonder if he is a faker. You're not falling for this Tommy rot, surely? Really, Mr. Blake? If I'd asked for your advice in this matter... I beg your pardon, Miss Gray. When we get to Nice, I'll take the first train back to Paris. Oh, no. No, wait, please. I... I didn't mean to be rude. It's nice of you to help us, but it's the whole atmosphere of Monte Carlo. Well, that's quite all right, my dear. We understand, of course. There's Aunt Hester in that villa over the Mediterranean. There's Ravel, all thin and quiet and swarthy, with those somber-looking eyes of his. He, he seems to dominate her, just as Mr. Stevens used to. Dominate her, my dear? That's rather a strong word for an easygoing old buffer like me. The things Ravel does at those seances are terrifying. I don't know whether he's an imposter or not. But I am sure nobody else can do what he does. Now, there, Marjorie, is where you're wrong. I can. You can? Yes. I promise to duplicate in front of your aunt every single trick Ravel ever performed. Oh, that's impossible. Is it? Wait and see. I'll put it up to Mr. Blake. It isn't merely that Ravel is tied up, tied hand and foot in a chair, while these horrible things are going on. I know there are people who can get out of ropes and back into them again. But Ravel lets you take one precaution that shows there can't be any trickery. Oh? And what is that precaution? Just before the lights go out, he takes a piece of white paper. Well? He puts one under each foot. He takes a pencil and draws an outline around the shoe on the paper. If he moves a millionth fraction of an inch, it would show in the outline later. But it never does. <laughs> well, look here, Toby. That's a bad one. Why does it strike you as being so funny? Because I can do it, too. Just give me a moment of darkness, that's all. You mean he gets out of his shoes or something like that? No, he could hardly get out of his shoes and back into them without disturbing the outline. Then he doesn't leave his chair after all. On the contrary, he can be all over the room. Well, how in Satan's name does he do it? My dear fellow, there's nothing simple. Villa Bijou, Monte Carlo, the next evening. On the lighted terrace, that white villa, overlooking the olive groves and the sea, 
three people are seated at their ease, enjoying the night air. Below glitters the town, a white palm garden. But even its lamps are dimmed by the firework illuminations from the Promenade des Anglais. When the Principality of Monaco celebrates its ruler's birthday, great rockets go hissing upwards to burst and bloom in colored fires against the black sky. Fireworks, the noise upsets me. I wish they'd stop. Never mind the fireworks, Hester. You've heard my proposition. Give me an answer. Oh, what's more, you're still broth on your jacket at dinner. You're the clumsiest eater I ever saw. Here, here. Let me take a handkerchief to it. Please, Aunt Hester. Won't you answer, Mr. Stevens? Why don't you two let me alone? Both of you. We're only trying to help you. Don't you believe that? Oh, yes, I, 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 I believe it. But I'm happy. I talked with my husband twice last week. Now, look here, Hester. This has got to stop. Why? Lavelle's a fraud, and I can prove it. If Monsieur Ravel is a fraud, what is he gained by this? Has he not asked for money? I don't know. Has he? No. Not a penny. You haven't changed your will by any chance. People do queer things sometimes that even their solicitors don't know about. Oh, no, dear. I haven't changed my will. When I die, uh, Marjorie inherits everything. I am a lonely woman. I'm getting old. I haven't got much to look forward to. Now, why don't you go your way and let me go mine? Suppose Ravel is a fraud. Just suppose it. Well, all right. Have your way. You wouldn't like to think you'd been deliberately tricked and imposed on now, would you? No, no. Now, listen, Hester. If I prove to you these so-called miracles were really tricks that I can do myself. Oh, don't be ridiculous, Alex. Alex Stevens. I hope to prove that here and now. Would that shake your faith a little? Yes, I, I suppose it would. I... But how did you become so clever all of a sudden? How did you become so gullible all of a sudden? You used to scoff at this sort of thing. You used to be gay and lively and go to the casino. Well, that was before Paul died. You're shivering, Marjorie. If you feel cold, put a wrap. I'm, I'm not cold. It's, it's only... Only what? Oh, got a kind of presentiment that there's something dreadful hanging over us. I can't tell what direction it's taking or who's in danger. But I'm sure it's going to burst. Just as sure as I... George, look at that rocket. Yes. Red and gold stars. And a deathly white blaze like the life we're living. You can see every leaf in the garden. Every blade of grass. And we can also see... Look there. Ravel and Ken Blake coming up the path. This, this Ken Blake, Mr. Stevens. Are you sure he's quite honest? My dear Marjorie, Ken's all right. I've known him for years. I thought he came here to help expose Ravel. But he and Ravel are as thick as thieves. What sort of game is going on here? Mademoiselle, you spoke of a game? Yes, Monsieur Ravel, I did. So did I, friend Ravel. Are you ready for my demonstration tonight? Demonstration? In the seance room upstairs. Do you claim you can bring back the dead? Pardon me, monsieur, I claim nothing. When I'm in trance, I cannot tell what happens. But I can. I'm going to make ghosts walk by perfectly natural means. You know, Monsieur Stevens, I... I don't understand your logic. Logic? Yes, you wish to, uh, how do you put it? Expose me? But how will you expose me by these childish tricks? If I show you a counterfeit ten-pound note, does that prove there's no Bank of England? I'm not going to argue subtleties with you. You can always beat me there. <laughs> I'm a plain, ordinary man with a little common sense to back me up. No, no, no. Come on, my friend. Not an ordinary man, surely. Just exactly what are you hinting at? Yes, I... I, I'd like to know that, too. Oh, Madame Hester, believe me, I didn't mean to upset you. I, 
It would, I, I wouldn't upset you for anything. No, I'll bet you wouldn't. Why, well, I kiss your hand, madame. I'm, I'm all apologies. Well, let this gentleman do what he likes. But I warn him, it is dangerous. Dangerous? How is it dangerous? That's the first time you've spoken, Mr. Blake. Why have you been so quiet? Please, Marjorie, please, now, be a good girl and stop interrupting. I'm sorry, Aunt Hester, but he's been muttering to himself and moving from one foot to the other and, and looking guilty. Confounded, I'm not looking guilty. Aren't you? No, it's a hot night. I don't like this business at all. Why will a seance be dangerous? Why? Because we shall be tampering with evil forces. Evil forces, my foot. Oh, you doubt it? Yes. <laughs> this brave Monsieur Stevens is challenging the unseen world. He's mocking at forces he does not understand. Believe me, monsieur, they are not mocked without danger. I'll risk that, thanks. Well, up in the seance room, with a door bolted on the inside, we shall be at their mercy. The evil forces, the elementals, will wax and grow strong. They can take us in their grip as I take this walking stick and... You've got strong hands, Monsieur Ravel. The hands of evil spirits are stronger. Much stronger. I'm afraid. I wonder if we ought to do this. I've been wondering the same thing. What does your aunt say? Oh, I, I, I don't know what to say. I, I'm so confused. And I want to break down and cry. I, well, I suppose we'd better do it, or Alex Stevens will never let me hear the end of it. For the last time, monsieur, will you be warned of danger? No. Very well. Oh, Madame Hester. Uh, yes, Monsieur Ravel. Do you believe that I am an imposter? No. No, dear, of course not. But, uh, but in uh, your heart, you are not yet convinced. Uh, well, I, I... I don't... I don't know. I, you know, I'm not such a fool as some people seem to think. But if something did happen, something to show there are living forces beyond this world, it would convince you utterly? Oh, yes. Yes, I... I... I suppose it would. <laughs> then uh, shall we allow Monsieur Stevens to go on with his demonstration? I have a feeling we shouldn't do this. Oh, I'm afraid. Upstairs at the Villa Bijou, there is a small, bare, deeply carpeted room. Its only furniture consists of a round table, five chairs and a large cabinet phonograph. There is only one door, and there are no windows. In one chair, a little way back from the table, sits Mr. Alexander Stevens. He is tied hand and foot, the outline of his shoes drawn with pencil on pieces of paper, so that he cannot move. Now, then, friend Raphael, have you quite finished tying me up? Oh, yes. Yes, and I bet you you won't get out of these knots, sir. Well, we'll see about that. Are the rest of you ready? Yes, yes, all right. Oh, dear, I, I wish I'd put some smelling salts in my handbag. Well, what do you want us to do now? You'll have conditions exactly as they are for Mr. Ravel. I'll sit in this chair back from the table. You four sit around the table, clasping hands to form a circle. All right, let's get on with it. Ken, will you start the gramophone? <laughs> I believe it's customary, Mr. Ravel, to have hymns played at the beginning of the seance. To establish the proper frame of mind? Yes, monsieur, that's true. You fool. What did you say? Oh, uh, nothing, monsieur. Please continue. Start the gramophone, Ken. When you've done that, turn out the lights from that switch by the door. 
Then join the circle. Clasp each other's hands tightly and don't let go unless... Unless what? Well, unless something gets me. Be careful, monsieur. Go on, please. Start the gramophone. All right, here goes. Now the lights, Ken. Switch off the lights. Lights? Yes. Yes, yes. There you are. It's pitch dark. I can't see my way back to the table. Here, Ken. Here's my hand. Thank you. Thanks. On the other side, Mr. Blake. Thank you. I've got my bearings now. Are all of you clasping the hands of the next person? Then quiet and wait for what's going to happen. Ken, look. Look where? Over there, where Mr. Stevens is sitting. What about it? There's a luminous spot in the dark, about the size of a shilling. Shh, shh, quiet, quiet, please. Did anything touch the back of your neck? No. Ah! Oh, oh, oh. What was that? It's Stevens. I know it. This was not on a program, madame. Break the circle and get those lights on. The luminous spot is still there. Oh, hurry, Ken. I can't see my way in the dark. I don't know which direction the lights are. Wait a minute. Here's the wall. If I grope along here, I ought to find the switch. Yes, yes, here it is. Lights. Ah! Quiet. Quiet silence, mademoiselle, if you please. What's wrong with Mr. Stevens? What's that sticking out of his chest? The handle of a dagger. And a good deal of blood has soaked through his coat, too. <laughs> oh, Monsieur Blake, will you turn off this gramophone? Yes, certainly. But you're not saying that Toby Stevens is dead. I'm afraid he is, my friend. That's a direct heart wound. Perhaps ten seconds of intense agony, and then the end. Oh, is the door still bolted from the inside? Yes. And we are all alone, here, the four of us. This rash gentleman, one imagines, did not kill himself. He's too well tied up. I know who killed him. Mr. George Ravel. You did, with luminous paint. I killed him, mademoiselle? With luminous paint? I mean, that was part of the trick. You tied him up. You were the only one who touched him. And? What is that, mademoiselle? Luminous paint doesn't show up in the light. You smeared a little of it on his coat. That showed you exactly where to strike in the dark. I commend your good sense, madame. But there are two excellent reasons why I had nothing to do with this. The first reason I, I must keep to myself, but the second reason can easily be proved. Well, what is it? Well, up to the time that man screamed, you yourself were holding my right hand, and Madame Hester was holding my left hand. Did either of you let go at any time? No. No, that is, that is I didn't. What about you, Aunt Helen? No, no, Marjorie, dear. I didn't let go either. He never moved. Hold on. Wait a minute. Well, monsieur, speak up. I was holding Marjorie's hand on one side and her aunt's on the other. And they didn't move either. Nobody let go or left the circle. That's true. Consequently, none of us could have killed Toby Stevens. Yes, it is true. Somebody must have sneaked in here. Oh, no. As you said yourself, the door is bolted on the inside. Then who the devil did kill him? Well, that's the question. Has anybody ever seen that dagger before? No. It, it looks like one of those curio things you buy in the shop. Yes, and uh, with a design of wooden scroll work on the handle. No fingerprints will show. Nothing else. Except some musical instruments. <laughs> a tambourine, an accordion, and a speaking trumpet. You know, I, I blame myself for this. You ought to. Why? Because you killed him. 
Don't ask me how, but I know why. Indeed, mademoiselle. You found my motive. Yes, yes, I have. You've got Aunt Hester fully believing in you now, haven't you? Easy, Marjorie. In another minute, you'll be talking about forces and elementals and heaven knows what. You'll <laughs> be saying it was a spirit hand that killed Mr. Stevens because nobody else could have. Please, Marjorie, brace up. Someone's got to send for the police. Why don't you send for the police, Ken? Couldn't you help us there? Help you? How? Mr. Stevens said you knew the heads of the Sûreté. He said you knew this man, Flamand, who's supposed to be the greatest detective in France. Oh, but this isn't French territory. Monte Carlo is the independent state of Monaco. I'm sorry, Marjorie. Ordinarily, I might have helped. You mean you won't help us? I'm sorry, Marjorie. I can't. And I've got to help myself. George Avell, you killed Mr. Stevens! But how? Yes, how? Twenty-four hours later... Twenty-four hours of blind puzzling. In the railway station at Nice, nine miles from Monte Carlo, the night express for Paris is already underway. The guard has blown his signal, and the great wheels grind. And a young man, hatless and worried, pushes through the crowd past the already moving train. No, monsieur. Je défendu. Vous êtes trop tard. Too late, nothing. I'm getting aboard this train. Prenez garde, monsieur. Prenez garde. I'm sorry to have caused you any trouble, guard. But do you happen to know whether... Marjorie. Ken Blake, what are you doing on this train? Exactly the question I wanted to ask you. Walk along the corridor with me, will you? All right. Marjorie, you little idiot. What's the idea of running away? If it's any of your business, Mr. Blake, I'm not running away. I'm merely going to Paris. You were told to stay in Monte Carlo. Don't you know you can land in jail for this? They'll put you in jail, too, won't they? Yes, I suppose so. But what's the idea of going to Paris? First of all, I had to get Aunt Hester away from that man, Ravel. She really thinks he can call up ghosts now. Is your aunt on this train? Yes, in that compartment there. Second, I'm going to Paris for some real help. I'm going to the Sûreté. I'm going to see this man, Flamand. You won't find Flamand in Paris, Marjorie. And you'll certainly never get him to arrest Georges Ravel. Oh? And why not? Because, my dear idiot, Georges Ravel is Flamand. What are you saying? The man who calls himself Ravel is really Flamand, the head of the whole French detective bureau. He made me promise not to tell anybody. Oh, then that's why you've been looking so guilty for two days. Yes, I tried to tip you off today, but the police were with us all the time. So he is a fake spiritual medium. Mr. Stevens was right about that. And I still say I'm right about the other thing. Whoever he is, Ravel killed Mr. Stevens. But how and why? Oh, I don't know. This alleged detective... Did he tell you why he was masquerading as a medium in Monte Carlo? No. All I know is that we're in one sweet mess. We've left town without permission. They'll probably stop the train and send us back in a patrol wagon. Oh, no, 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 my friend. That won't be at all necessary. Ravel! Yes, mademoiselle. Ravel or uh, Flamand. <laughs> well, since you know me as Ravel, call me that. You, you knew that I was on this train? Oh, naturally. Look here, old man. I kept quiet about you because you swore it was a matter of life and death. Will you answer a couple of questions now? Oh, with pleasure. Why did you pose as a medium? Because the Monarchian government employed me to trap a murderer. So I had to work hard, you see, undercover. All right. Why was Toby Stevens killed? Stevens was killed because he was a blackmailer. A blackmailer? Yes, mademoiselle. Does that surprise you? Yes. Oh, yes, of course. Very much. 
I tried to warn Stevens, but the fool wouldn't listen. And then, well, I wasn't quick enough. Stevens was murdered, of course, by one of us four in the seance room. Well, that's impossible. Hmm? Impossible? Oh, no. The trick was baffling because of its simplicity. I'm sure you killed him. <laughs> one moment, mademoiselle. Let me show you what I mean by trick baffling because it is so simple. Take, for example, the pencil outline drawn on a paper around the medium shoes. Did Stevens tell you how I did that? No. On this train two nights ago, he, he started to tell us... That... Then he just stopped in the middle of it and laughed. <laughs> you see, the medium leaves his chair. Well, he makes tambourines rattle and ghost forms appear. Yet the pencil outline is not disturbed. Now, how does he manage it? Well, how does he manage it? Well, quite easily. He returns to his chair. He turns over the two pieces of paper. He takes another pencil and draws an outline of his shoes on the reverse side of the paper. <laughs> you look at it. And... and imagine it's the same outline we drew. Precisely. So easily are people misled. And it was the same way with a murder. But there couldn't have been any trick about the murder. None of us left the circle. We were all clasping hands when we heard that scream. Don't you agree? Huh? Oh, yes, I agree. I can't stand this any longer. Well, we heard Mr. Stevens utter that horrible scream. What I... makes you think it was Stevens who uttered that scream? I... I beg your pardon. What makes you think it was Stevens who screamed? Well, wasn't it? Oh, you assumed it, yes. Well, we all assumed it. But up to that time... Stevens wasn't even hurt. Wasn't hurt? You see, the source of sound cannot be located in the dark. It was the murderer who uttered that appalling cry. In a few seconds of darkness, before the lights went on, the killer simply leaned across and drove that dagger into Stevens' chest. And you prove that? Yes. If Stevens had been hit at the time of the scream... Blood would have blotted out the spot of luminous paint. Yet, Marjorie Gray saw the paint shining after the scream. That's true, Marjorie. I heard you say so. You put the luminous paint there, Ravella. You were the only person who touched him. Oh, no. There was one other person who touched him. Who was it? Another person in full sight of you said Stevens had spilled broth on his coat and swabbed at his chest with a handkerchief. You mean... I mean, of course, the real murderer. You were Aunt Hester. Yes, Marjorie. Your Aunt Hester. Aunt Hester. Keep back, all of you. Oh, so you managed to find the revolver. Marjorie, I poisoned your Uncle Paul. I poisoned my husband. And Alex Stevens knew it. You can't get away, madame. <laughs> Keep away from that door. I never believed in spiritualism. I let myself be influenced by a medium because Alex Stevens would try to stop it. He was getting money out of me. He wanted no other influence. Don't open that door, madame. But I am opening Oh, Aunt Hester, don't! I told you I wasn't as fool as I looked. I had the knife in my hand. Stop her, kid! Stop her! Well, mademoiselle, she has committed many crimes, but now she has paid for them all.
so closes The Moment of Darkness, starring Peter Laurie, Wendy Berry, with George Zuko. Tonight's tale of suspense. This is your narrator, the man in black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next Tuesday when Agnes Moorhead and Ray Collins will star in a study in terror entitled The Diary of Sophronia Winter. The producer of these broadcasts is William Spear, who with Ted Bliss, the director, Wilbur Hatch, Lucian Marowick, conductor and composer, and John Dixon Carr, the author, collaborated on tonight's Suspense. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Well, 
Sitting out here all by your lonesome? Oh. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. Didn't I see you last night over at the Starfish Tea Room? The Starfish Tea Room? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, yes, I was there yesterday. But it was so crowded, I'm afraid I don't recall. Quite a nice cuisine they've got over there. It... Mind if I sit down beside you? Oh, not at all. Oh, oh just a minute. Uh, sit on this magazine. The beach is so sandy. Oh, sand doesn't bother me. I'm from Maine, you know. We get plenty of sand up there. Do you? You've been down here at St. Pete long? Oh, just three days. Three days? That's a long time. It's a wonder I didn't spot you before. Oh, Mr. Pitt. Uh, Johnson's the name. Hiram Johnson. Oh. I come from Green Harbor, Maine. Run a big hotel up there, Summers. Oh, well, that's my whole history in a nutshell. My name's Sophronia. Sophronia Winters. Sophronia? Uh-huh. Well, you know, that's quite a coincidence. My sister-in-law's name was Sophronia. Oh? Sophronia Johnson. You ever heard of her? She looked quite a bit like you, too. Sophronia Johnson? No, I'm afraid I haven't. Who was she? Someone very famous? <laughs> I'm so ignorant about these things. Oh, that's all right. Say, look at that sun, will you? I'd say it was pretty nearly time for lunch. And Diary, darling, he is wonderful. Strong and kind, warm-hearted, so generous. I don't want to be like the other silly women in this town, but Hiram is different. There's, there's something almost poetic about him, something sad and, and deep. You know, Sophronia, it's kind of mysterious us finding that nine-point starfish on the beach together. My sister-in-law, Sophronia, used to collect nine-point starfishes. And to think your name, Sophronia, and you find a nine-point starfish with me. Well, it kind of draws us together, eh? Huh? What do you think? Completely. As though I'd known him all my life. My landlady says it's foolish. But look at Romeo and Juliet. Weren't they foolish? What's the good of waiting, Sophronia? I've got to be back at the hotel in a week. We we may never see each other again. Oh, Hiram, don't say that. I, I couldn't bear it. Then let's do it right away. Tomorrow? There's a parson out on Coral Avenue who'll do the job for us. We can take a nice moonlight drive out to the alligator farm afterward, have a nice shore dinner, then climb on board the Orange Blossom tomorrow night for Maine. <sighs> Just think of Maine. The big dark pine woods, the sand, the bay. The two of us alone together. Two of us, alone, together. February 7th, on board the Orange Blossom. I was married in a wedding dress of Alice Blue Moiré, with a frill of white organdy at the collar and wrists, and a rhinestone belt buckle. Hiram sent me talisman roses. I'm pressing one precious flower between the pages of this diary for luck. Understand in a couple of minutes. Uh, bags heavy? No, not particularly, dearest. Oh, I can't get over that taxi man at the station. Imagine his insolence saying he couldn't drive us over. <laughs> Maybe he didn't have any gas. It happens sometimes around here. Well, anyway, I'm glad the weather's so mild. Can you imagine what it would be like in a blizzard? There's the place. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want to look until I put down these bags. <sighs> now, where? There. Through those big pine trees. Oh. Oh, it is big, isn't it? 125 rooms. So many fire escapes and balconies and porches and towers. 
I, uh, I stayed in a hotel like that once years ago with Papa. It was very fashionable then. My grandfather built that place 50 years ago. Hasn't been changed much since. No? Well, of course, you've put in modern plumbing. Not yet. Here we are. Walk in. Oh, what's that? Just a foghorn out in the bay. Fog? We get it almost every night in this kind of weather. What are you locking the gate for? Why not? There's nobody coming in after us. Or going out again for a while. But I, I thought you said the hotel. The hotel's empty. Hiram. What is it now? Hiram, darling, I know it sounds silly, but but let's not go in there tonight. Let's let's wait until morning. Why? Oh, just because it's so dark and empty, there's not a light in the whole place, and no one's expecting us. What do we eat? Where will we sleep? Let's stay in the village just for tonight. I've got things to eat and a place to sleep. Come on. Oh, my arm. Hiram. Hiram. Do you remember my telling you down in Florida about my sister-in-law, Sophronia? Well, that's her over there on the wall. Take a look at her. Hiram, you hurt me. Oh, well, this glass is very dusty. She must have died many years ago. But her face is sweet, very sweet. And her eyes, it, there's something very sad and wistful about her eyes. She was a murderess. She was hanged in Portland 25 years ago for the murder of my brother Ephraim here in the lobby of this hotel. She murdered him in cold blood with an axe. That fire axe hanging over there on the wall. Hiram. It was a summer day. There were guests sitting out on the front porch in the rockers. It was just after lunch. My brother Ephraim was sitting at the desk counting his loose change. My mother was crocheting in that old wicker rocking chair. Sophronia came downstairs humming a hymn. Oh, don't, Hiram. Please, please don't tell me anymore. Why not? Well, it makes me nervous to hear it like this in this big shadowy lobby. And and your eyes, Hiram. Your eyes. Hiram, you're acting so strange. Hiram, what's the matter with you, dear? I, I know it was a terrible tragedy, but it happened 25 years ago. Don't touch me, Sophronia. Don't touch you. Do you remember what I said to you in Florida? What did you say? Were you... You said a million sweet and wonderful things to me, Hiram. I said you resembled my dead sister-in-law. Look at her again. Look at her closely. Sophronia. But why? Oh, no, no, I can't. It's too horrible. I can't look at her face with any pleasure now, knowing she was a murderess. You're afraid to look at it? No, no, I'm not afraid. Hiram! Hiram, please, my arm! Oh, very well. Hello. Now, stand there quietly, like that. Take off your glasses. Uh, that's all I wanted to see. That's all I wanted. February thirteenth, Green Harbor Hotel, Maine. I can't understand it. I try to fathom it, but my head aches and my heart is heavy. The hotel is deserted. Has been for 25 years. Everything is covered with spiders and cobwebs. Great dining room with its oak woodwork is alive with rats. And the row of broken rocking chairs on the front porch faces emptily out to sea. 
said he mean this to be my home. He's downstairs in the shabby parlor, off the lobby, playing the harmonium. Sonia. Yes? Yes, Hiram? Sleeping? Uh, no, dear. Why is your door locked? Come out. I want to show you around the place. It's... It's all right, dear. I, I've seen it. I, I've seen just about everything. No, you haven't. You haven't seen the grounds at all. The grounds? But, Hiram, it's after midnight. I want to show you where my sister-in-law, Sophronia, is buried. Well, no. Not tonight, dear. Please, it's so late and I, I have a headache. Open the door, Sophronia. I want you to come now. No, no, I shan't. Oh, go away. Let me alone. I won't. I, I won't. I won't. No use carrying on like that. You oh. see, I, I have pass keys to all the doors. Beyond, where those four birches are standing, is where my sister-in-law, Sophronia, was laid away 25 years ago. It was the biggest funeral in the neighborhood. Folks crowded outside the gate with the dozens trying to get a look, but we wouldn't let them. Buried her ourselves without a service out here by herself on the grounds. Ephraim was buried in town, but not Sophronia. I had a feeling I'd have to keep an eye on her even then. Keep an eye? I knew she was one of those restless sleepers who wouldn't stay quiet in her own grave. I knew before the year was out she'd find some way to start roaming around hunting for mischief again. She was a young she-devil to the core, Sophronia. They could hang her till doomsday. Wouldn't do any good. You mean... You mean the... You think she haunts this hotel? No, no, not this hotel. She never had any use for it, alive or dead. No... She makes for the warmer climates. She was always a cold-blooded little fish, freezing and shivering all the time. It's places like California and Texas and Florida she makes for. Florida? Yes, that's one of her favorite haunts, particularly around St. Pete. She likes the flowers and the sun and the romance. Hiram, I feel cold. Do you mind if I go inside Just now? a minute, just a minute. I, I haven't explained everything. You think I'm crazy, I guess. Crazy. But I'm a lot smarter than some people give me credit for. Because, you see, I have found her now. Three times. Do you see that grove of birches over there? Under every one of them's a grave. I found her wandering the earth in disguise three times. And I've killed her three times. Mm. It still doesn't do any good. She's still restless. You... You mean you... You've killed... Three different women? So now I keep another open grave to remind her. It's waiting now. Would you like to see it? Sophronia? No, Hiram. No, no, please, I... Are you afraid to see it, Sophronia? No, I... Hiram... You don't mean to say that you think just because my name happens to be Sophronia that, that I look a little like... Think what, Sophronia? Nothing. February 14th. My mind is made up. I've made a terrible mistake and I must get away from this place. 
I must get away from Hiram as quickly as I can. <coughs> it should be easy. There's no fog today. If I can only escape from the hotel, I can run and hide in the pine woods. No. No. I shall wait for dusk when he generally sits down in the parlor and plays the harmonium. <coughs> I can hide a little earlier in one of the deserted rooms and, and, and then when his back is toward the lobby, slip out the front door. wrong? No, Hiram. You didn't want anything outside, did you? Because if you do, you'll have to ask me to get it for you. You see, I always keep the front door locked. Yes, Hiram. Yes, the back door, too. And all the doors leading out into the porches and fire escapes. And a good many of the windows. It makes one feel safe from thieves and peeping toms. Oh, you've got a cold. That's too bad. Yes. I must have caught it last night. Outdoors. The damp. You ought to be in bed. A good bed. The only good bed in the house is in my sister-in-law, Sophronia's old room. No, no, Hiram. I'm all right. Is, is this a little head cold? Oh, little head colds <laughs> often develop into pneumonia. Why, it's too bad I didn't think of that before. You might have slept in it from the beginning. Here, up these stairs. What? What's the matter? Are you so weak? No. <coughs> no, I'm all right. This room is the cleanest in the hotel, too. I've always had a sort of suspicion about it. You see, I've kept everything as it was. What's the matter? Nothing. Nothing. It's just... It seems kind of familiar. No, no, no. It, it's just that seeing it so clean, seeing it as though someone were living here, as, as, as though they it only just stepped out for a moment. It's as she left it that afternoon when she walked down to murder my brother. You see her needlework on the table with the needle sticking in it? And her hymn book still open? Mm. She was very fond of singing hymns, Sophronia was. Had a nice voice, too. I used to accompany her. Uh, I'll turn down the bed for you. And you can get undressed while I go and make you some hot tea. No, I don't want any. Here's the closet. You can put on one of Sophronia's dressing gowns. Diary. I'm beside myself. I shall go mad. I shall go mad. Two hours have passed since he locked the door upon me. Night's fallen and I'm alone. Alone in this horrible room with its hideous little mementos of death. I, I'm sitting here at her little wicker table trying to be calm, trying to write this. Somehow, when one writes about a thing, it, it doesn't appear so real. My hand is just brushed against her needlework. Her hymn book. Where they still lie, waiting. I can bear having them near me no longer. I must get them out of sight, anywhere. In that closet. Ready for your tea? No. Uh, yes, Hiram. 
Why aren't you in bed? You take worse colds, you know. I'll get in bed in a minute. Uh, first, oh. I... Oh. Brushing up on your needlework again? My needlework? You've got it in your hand. Have I? Oh, oh yes. Yes, so I... Uh, but I, I wasn't working on it, Hiram. I swear I wasn't. I, I, I've never done a stitch of needlework in my whole life. I don't know one embroidered stitch from another. Now, let me show you. Look, I don't even know how to hold the needle. Get into bed, Sophronia. You're feverish. Before we go on, Hiram, before you go on thinking, I, I, we've got to have an understanding. You've got to let me explain. I... I I was born in 1892 in Kalamazoo, Michigan. My name is Sophronia, that's true, but they name lots of people Sophronia. I, I, I was named for my grandmother. She had just died. No, 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 you've got to listen to me. I've lived in Kalamazoo all my life. If you'd only just write a letter or send a wire. Well, I've never heard of Green Harbor in my whole life. I, I never went anywhere. For almost ten years, I stayed home day in and day out nursing Papa. He had, he had a stroke. I wasn't out of the house. It was a red brick house in the green shutter. February 15th. Now I live only from moment to moment, listening to each creak upon the stairs. <coughs> I've been in bed all day. It's night now. A foghorn has begun to blow again. February 19th. I, I woke up early this morning after a wretched night and... And the date was burning in letters of fire in my brain. If he's planning to kill me, it'll be today. But the hours have been crawling on. It's almost midnight. Oh, why, if he's going to kill me, doesn't he do it at once? Why does he torture me like this? I'd rather be dead than sit here in this room one moment longer. I can't bear it. If he doesn't come in five minutes, I shall force him to come. I shall beat on the door. No. No. Rather let me sit quiet praying that he doesn't come. Oh, I want to live. I want to live. Sophronia. Sophronia, come downstairs. I want you to sing me a hymn. Sing? Sing? He, he never asked me to sing for him before. But she sang. I, I can't sing, dear. I, I told you that long ago. Did you? Well, I've forgotten. And besides, how can I... Come downstairs when my door's locked. It's unlocked. Try it. Unlocked. Oh, no. How could it be? Oh. Oh, it is, it is, and I never know it. I never know it. <clears throat> Coming? He unlocked it. Sometime while I was just sitting. Oh, why didn't I try a few more times? Why did I just sit there assuming? No, no, he's caught me anyway. He'd have known. But I might Oh, now it's too late. He's going to kill me. Sophronia. Yes, Hiram. I'm coming. 
In here. In the parlor. What are you doing there, Hiram? Waiting to hear you sing. You're at the harmonium? Yes. All right. I'll sing. I haven't sung in years, but I might as well. I'll sing for you out here in the hall. My voice will carry better. It always did carry better in the hall, didn't it, Sophronia? So you remember that, too. Of course, you know both the front and back doors are locked. Play a few bars, Hiram, dear, to warm me up. Shall I sing, too, Sophronia? Would you like me to sing along with you? If it pleases you, Hiram. Work for the night is coming. Work in the morning sun. Work for the night is coming. When man's work is done. Work while the day. Shall, shall I read it to you? Yes. Yes, go ahead. March 22nd. I've been sick, I think, for a very long time. The pages of my diary are blank, but I shall take you out again for a diary today and start you over again. No. No, I shall never look back at the other pages. I shall only write on and on about this beautiful place so that no one reading this diary will ever know that I did it. <laughs> but I did do it, diary. I was smarter than he. When I opened that door at the head of the stairs and heard the music, when I saw the fire axe still hanging on the wall. <laughs> so cautious, so terribly cautious. I tiptoed like a little mouse, even as I sang the hymn into that room where he was playing. But I was clever, so much cleverer than he. I kept on singing, and now I'm free, free as a bird. I'm free, and he shall never catch me now, not this time or ever again, because, because he's dead. Isn't he, nurse? Nurse, isn't my dear brother-in-law, Hiram, really dead? Yes, miss, he's dead. And now I'll thank you to hand me that diary. The doctor doesn't approve of the patient's writing anything. And 
so closes the Diary of Sophronia Winter, starring Agnes Moorhead and Ray Collins. Tonight's tale of The Fed. Hey, you listening to this podcast, I've got a message for you. If you've drank the rest, now drink the best. Gun Barrel Coffee. We are the Gun Barrel Coffee Incorporated team. We are united by the love of coffee, guns, freedom, and America. What started as a hobby has turned into a high-quality home-roasted coffee enjoyed by family, friends, and now the public. We are proud to donate a portion of our proceeds to the organizations who support those who serve, those who protect, and defenders of our rights and freedom. Accept no other substitutes. You've had the rest. Now drink the best. Gun Barrel Coffee. You can find the guys at GunBarrelCoffee.com. Every 30 minutes, another innocent person is killed due to a drunk driver. My best friend. My brother. My poor grandchild. My sister. My father. My husband. My mom. <laughs> My mommy. Well, I've been afraid of changing Cause I've built my life around you Stop these tragedies before they happen. Don't drink and drive. Thoughts of suicide may feel impossible to overcome. But with help and support, you can find hope and meaning. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK to speak to a counselor or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. It's free. It's confidential. It's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And even if it feels like it, you're not alone. Take a stand. Take a stand. Take a stand. Like my brother did. And he wouldn't take no for an answer. Like my wife did when she asked the right questions. Like my friend did when she made the call. You stood by us when we were in uniform, so stand by us now. Take a stand for those who served our country. If you're a veteran in crisis or no one who is, the Confidential Veterans Crisis Line is here for you. Call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Chat at veteranscrisisline.net or text 838-255. Returning in 2023, June 3rd, Eden Springs Amusement Park and Campground, it's Ghost-O-Rama. Ghost-O-Rama is back, second year after our triumphant first event in Pawpaw, we're now headed to the Eden Springs Amusement Park and Campground in Benton Harbor, Michigan. That's right, train rides for kids, Comic-Con car show, a paranormal group's meet and greet, live entertainment, food vendors, Regular vendors, fun is to be had by all. Come and check us out at Ghostorama in Benton Harbor, Michigan, at the House of David Amusement Park and Campground. The event begins from 11 and goes till 7 p.m. with an after-hours ghost hunt of the haunted hotel and remains of the restaurant on the property and of the property. $25 per person. That's right, $25 per person. No one under 16, please. That's Ghostorama, June 3rd. Mark your calendars from 11 to 7 at the Benton Harbor. 
House of David Amusement Park and Campground. We'll see you there. Live entertainment provided to you exclusively by unrestrictedradio.com. Awesome music lovers are listening to Unrestricted Radio. Check out Unrestricted Radio at unrestrictedradio.com and download the Unrestricted Radio app today. Unrestricted Radio. We play the bands that other radio stations should be playing. Hey, you listening to this podcast, I've got a message for you. If you've drank the rest, now drink the best. Gun Barrel Coffee. We are the Gun Barrel Coffee Incorporated team. We are united by the love of coffee, guns, freedom, and America. What started as a hobby has turned into a high-quality home-roasted coffee enjoyed by family, friends, and now the public. We are proud to donate a portion of our proceeds to the organizations who support those who serve, those who protect, and defenders of our rights and freedom. Accept no other substitutes. You've had the rest. Now drink the best. Gun Barrel Coffee. You can find the guys at GunBarrelCoffee.com. This is the Big Dog, and I want you to know that you're not alone. The team at the National Runaway Safe Line is here for you, offering a range of support services 24-7. For the hotline, call 1-800-RUNAWAY or 1-800-786-2929 to speak with a trained NRS staff member or volunteer who will listen and support you. If you are a victim of child abuse or are thinking of running away to escape an abusive home, call now and you will be helped. The number again is 1-800-786-2929. August 19th, it's ghost Rama, the Van Buren Poorhouse Museum in Hartford, Michigan. This event is free to the public. It's a paranormal meet and greet, Comic-Con, monster car show, food and drinks will be available, vendors of all shapes, sizes, and colors, and of course, live entertainment. And that is provided to you by unrestrictedradio.com. Ghostorama, August 19th, Van Buren Poorhouse Museum in Hartford, Michigan. The event goes from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. with an after-hours ghost hunt of a location to be announced. That's $25 per person, no one under 16. Ghost-O-Rama, we hope to see you there. This is 
Here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Heading our starring Hollywood cast this evening is Mr. Richard Dick, who appears as a United States Naval officer, who found himself in a remarkable predicament on what should have been an uneventful flight from New York to Philadelphia. As fellow passengers aboard the airliner, on Miss Gail Page is a girl named Monica, and Mr. Montague Love, who plays that aged and domineering millionaire Silas Naylor. A story by John Dixon Carr called Death Flies Blind is tonight's tale of suspense. If you have been with us on these Tuesday nights, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion, dangerous adventure. In this series are tales calculated to intrigue you, stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation, and then withhold the solution until the last possible moment. And so it is with Death Flies Blind and the performances of Richard Dix, Gail Page, Montague Love, and our other players, we again hope to keep you in suspense. LaGuardia Field, Municipal Airport of New York. LaGuardia Field, vast behind its white buildings. On a gray spring afternoon when rain splashes across the runways, dims the sky, and spatters on the wings of a great silver-painted airliner waiting beyond. Already as the limousine bus from the New York terminus slowly draws up to the waiting shed, you can hear the loud speaker. The big limousine bus besides its driver contains only two persons. One is a tall young man in United States Naval uniform, with the stripes of a lieutenant commander around his sleeve. The other is a tall and dark-haired girl, a face a little frightened in the blue. Flight 72, New York to Los Angeles. Plane ready to take off at gate number 6. Have your tickets ready, please. That, that can't mean us. Now, take it easy, Monica. We're not too late. They won't go without us. No, I mean it says New York to Los Angeles. That's right, Monica. We're only going to Philadelphia. You're still right, my dear. I arranged for a special stop in Philadelphia. It won't take long, and then they go on non-stop from there. But that's just it. Who's going on from there? Oh, you'd be surprised. But the airport bus must hold 20 people, but there's nobody in it except ourselves and the driver. Who's going on to Los Angeles or, or anywhere else? I uh, was going to tell you about that, Monica. All right, All right, sir. Hop under that shed and out the door on the other side. Oh, uh, got your tickets ready? Yes, I've got them. All set, Monica? The rain is certainly coming down. Do they take off when it rains like this? Oh, Miss, a little rain don't bother them. What does bother them is the unsettled weather at other places. You mean it's, it's perfectly safe? They never take off, Miss, unless it is safe. You better hurry up now. There's the plane, Monica. Shall we run for it? But I'd rather not run if you don't mind. Aren't getting nervous, are you? I know it's stupid of me. I've flown before. It's just all those few seconds before the takeoff. You're moving and the motors have been idling. All of a sudden they start to roar. The plane races ahead and the roar gets louder and suddenly you think, am I ever going to get down alive? Now look here, my dear. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Fred. There's nothing to worry about, you know. Of course not. I'll be good. It's just this dismal day and this ghostly bus is out in your past visit. Look. Where? At the plane. They've got all the windows covered inside with little gray curtains. Oh, that's all right, Monica. It's only a wartime measure. Wartime measure? Yes. Just keep those curtains closed for some minutes after taking off and before landing. So no one can make maps or take pictures of our airports. 
Anything could happen up there, No. And what's more, if you're worried about your fellow passengers, look over your shoulder. Well, there are some people coming through the gate. Yes. You see the little gray-haired man with the big fellow on each side of him? The secretary dashing around him like a destroyer in a convoy? You know, I've seen that gray-haired man somewhere before. You've seen his picture? That's Silas Naylor, the third richest man in the world. Those two big fellows are his bodyguards. Does he need a bodyguard? Well, I... Not more than most of us, I imagine. I don't like it. Oh, nonsense, my dear. Come on now, up the steps to plane. Give your name to the air hostess at the door. That's it. Good afternoon, miss. May I have your name, please? Uh, I'm, um, I'm Monica Vale. You're the air hostess? That's right, Miss Vale. Take any seat you like. And you, sir? Onslow, Lieutenant Commander Fred Onslow. Oh, yes, Commander. We've had instructions about you. Happy to have you with us, even if it's only as far as Philadelphia. Thank you. May I take your overcoat or your briefcase? Only the overcoat, please. I'll keep the briefcase. Fred, look there. What is it now? That man you called Mr. Naylor's secretary. Light-haired man, rather good-looking. He's sprinting towards this plane as fast as he can run. Well, you'd better be careful on that slippery surface. He certainly has. Look out, man. Look out, man. Watch your step. Look out. Are you all right? Here, let me help you up. I'm all right, thanks. Perfectly all right. Air hostess. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Michael Shepard. I'm Mr. Naylor's secretary, and I think there must be some mistake here. Mistake, sir? Yes. When Mr. Naylor travels, he's in the habit of booking every seat in the plane to ensure privacy. Yet he seems to have two extra passengers. Well, I'm afraid that's my fault, Mr. Shepard. Indeed, sir. Then would you and the young lady be good enough to take some later flight? Well, I'm sorry. I'm afraid I can't do that. No, and why not? Maybe I ought to explain, Mr. Shepard. Commander Onslow had last-minute orders to join his ship. He and Miss Vale have priority as far as Philadelphia. Philadelphia? Must we stop there? Only for a few minutes, Mr. Shepard. This is outrageous. Mr. Naylor is traveling, in a sense, on government business. Well, so am I, old man. The Navy often does. That doesn't alter the principle of the thing. I, I don't want to seem ungracious, you understand. Mr. Naylor is always glad to help our our brave soldiers and oh, sailors. Oh, love of Mike. Now, choir will now sing hymn number 242. Now the but this right time you've gone too far. I shall appeal to Mr. Naylor himself. Mr. Naylor, oh. Mr. Naylor. Yes, Mr. Shepard, I can hear you. What is it? This naval officer, sir, and the young lady. Oh, I know, Shepard, I know. Isn't the plane big enough for all of us? I was only following your orders, Mr. Naylor. You asked for privacy. All right, Shepard. What I'm asking for now is less noise. The lieutenant commander in the Navy, eh? That's right, Mr. Naylor. Off on another fishing trip, I suppose. That's just exactly right, sir. Ever had to step yet? No, never. Well, I had. 20,000 a year I've had state office. And what do they give me? This stump. I'm not surprised you got priority, Commander, but I am a little surprised about the girl. She's my fiance, Mr. Naylor, Miss Vale. Meet the rest of my family. These two bruisers here, including the one with the mouth organ, are my bodyguard, Mr. Cohen. I'm pleased to meet you, Commander. How do you do? This is Mr. O'Reilly. Glad to know you, Commander. How are things going? Hey, Cohen, can't, don't you ever get tired of playing that mouth organ? And stand away from the doors. I want to close it. Are we ready to take off? Yes, in just a moment. Shepard. O'Reilly. Come on. Come along to the front of the plane. Yes, sir. Oh, we'll sit in the back here, won't we, Fred? Uh, yes. Uh, yes, of course. I, um... Fred, is, is anything wrong? No. No, of course not. Why, why what could be wrong? Well, we'd better sit down. We're starting to move. That's good advice, Commander Onslow. But I must ask you, Miss Vale, not to touch the curtain on the window. 
soon before we can open the curtain. As soon as we're well away from New York. You see that illuminated sign, no smoking, fasten seatbelt? Yes. What about it? When the lights and the sign go out, you can open the curtain. And smoke as much as you like. Now, if you'll excuse me, certainly. You needn't try to fool me, said I'm so I can You saw what? I saw you pick up that scrap of paper one of those men dropped. Why, why, that wasn't anything, Monica. May I see the paper? No. Why not? Well, because, uh, because I'd rather you didn't see it, that's all. There is something wrong, isn't there? Look, Monica, let me repeat over and over. What could be wrong? Why, there's Silas Naylor, an internationally famous figure, with a group of trusted attendants. Here's an ACA plane as safe and dependable as the old gray mare. All the same, All the same what? I wish I hadn't brought you along. I wish there was some kind of an emergency cord, like a train. We're on our way. Fifteen minutes, thirty minutes, forty minutes. The great silver plane throbs against dead quiet. Warm and stuffy in the cabin, despite the hissing ventilator. Dim white reading lamps shine down on a double row of cushioned chairs along one side and a single row of cushioned chairs along the other. Ahead, above the closed door to the pilot's control cabin, the red glowing sign still warns against opening those curtains. Aft in the plane sits Commander Onslow, his eyes fixed on the clock under that illuminated sign. Monica. Yes? What? It's not exactly all right. Said, why do you think that? Because we should have been in Philadelphia five minutes ago. At least we should have been circling over the field. And we're not? No. But we're still 10 or 12,000 feet up if the pressure in my eardrums count for anything. And traveling like a bat out of Hades. Weather's delaying us, I guess, huh? Maybe it is. Awfully bumpy, isn't it? Yes, a little. Makes you gasp the breath in your stomach. That was a bad one. Not getting airsick, are you? I don't think so. I wish I had some of that chewing gum you give me. Ring for the air hostess. She'll bring you some. I did ring the bell, Fred, and there's no answer. Oh, she's busy in the pantry back there, that's all. She didn't hear you. Here, I'll get you some gum. No, no, wait, I'll, I'll go. Sure you're all right? I want a part of my nose anyway. Besides, you're going to have company. Our Mr. Shepherd is reading along this aisle as though he didn't like air pockets either. Well, thank the Lord one of that party's awake up there. I thought they were all dead. Say what? Dead. We'll playing with everything so quiet and, and dead itself. Remember how the pilot walked through a while ago and looked around and walked, walked right back to the control cabin? No, I didn't notice him. Oh, that's what I mean. It was like a ghost. <laughs> I'll be right back. Hey, Commander Onslow. Yes, Mr. Shepard? Uh, mind if I sit down? Not at all. Go ahead. Back this, Commander. I want to apologize. Oh, that's all right. Forget it. I'm not such an ill-mannered guy as I must have found. No joke, you know, taking care of the sheep. I've got to go ahead like a cyclone, so, so that everything would be quiet when he gets there. And it's a great responsibility, too. I can imagine. I go on these long trips. There's the sheep, half asleep, and O'Reilly reading detective magazines and coin with his mouth organ. Doesn't that mouth organ bother the old boy? No, he likes it. Especially when Cohen plays the old square dancer. Chief's a great man in his way. I was just wondering about that. Wondering what? Is it true? Stop me if I'm talking out of turn. Go ahead. We can trust the neighbors. 
Is it true he's offered to design and build at his own expense a fleet of underwater cargo boats, uh, submersible freighters, up to five or 6,000 tons, that to do away with the submarine menace altogether? Where did you hear that? Oh, just rumor. Is it uh, true? Uh, yes, it's true enough. You see, Mr. Shepard, I'm one of the few people who believe that that plan is practical. But there must be a lot of people who would like to see Mr. Naylor put out of the way. There are, Commander. Only they can't get at him. You're quite sure of that? Dead sure. Hitler himself isn't better guarded. Why, you could no more shoot or stab or poison the chief than you could... What, what was that? What happened? Monica? Is anything wrong back there? Well, it's all right, sir. It's only a noise in the pantry. We'll see to it. Monica! Monica, pull yourself together. What's wrong? That air hostess, Miss Lee. Well, what about her? She's lying back in the pantry among the broken dishes with her head all over blood. Somebody beat her over the head and left her there to die. Somebody? Yes. But nobody's gone back to the pantry. Nobody's gone past us except... Except the pilot, the co-pilot of this plane, remember? Excuse me, Mr. Shepard. I'm going to open the curtains on that window. Do you think it's wise, Commander? We were told not to. Well, we were told a lot of things. I'll just take the responsibility of... Good Lord. There, there, Monica. Mr. Naylor, Mr. Naylor. Yes, son, what's up? Draw the curtain on your window and take a look down. If O'Reilly and Cohen have got guns, they better keep them handy. Is that so now? Why? Because we're not flying west. We're over the Atlantic Ocean now and headed straight out to sea. Anybody here know anything about first aid? I do, Commander. I studied medicine in the old days. Then you better go back and look after the hostess. You join Mr. Naylor. Steady, Mike. Oh, I'm all right. It's a horrible blind scene, that's Here, Pocket, look out. See here, Commander. What's where over the ocean? What the devil's going on here, eh? You were being kidnapped, Mr. Naylor. That's my guess. Kidnapped, did you say? Ah, come off it, Commander. We ain't as dumb as that. The pilot and the co-pilot of this plane are fakes. They've replaced the real officer. Ah. On a dark day like this, with their raincoat collars turned up, they could have gotten away with it. And hijacked them straight off the airfield. Is that it? Yes, I'm afraid so. The hostess must have spotted one of them and knocked her out. Mm -hmm. Now, what about the airport? Wouldn't they know a plane was missing? Oh, not until we failed to show up at Philadelphia. The pilot would report by aerial radio telephone about, oh, 15 minutes out of New York. But after that, silence. Excuse me, Commander. You say these two fake pilots are still aboard? In that compartment there with the closed door? Yes, that's right. Well, what are we waiting for, Corn? Do we get to work on them? You said it, Barney. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, both of you. You wouldn't be trying to stop us, would you, Commander? The one thing we don't want is a gunfight 12,000 feet up. Can any of you fly a plane? No, not one of us. Now, neither can I. So if anything happens to those two pilots, how are we going to get down? I see, young fellow. Well, what are you going to do? Now, first of all, we'll try rapping on the door. Have your gun ready. You can count on that, sir. Fred, Fred, listen to me. Be quiet, Mike. Has this anything to do with the scrap of paper you picked up off the floor? What scrap of paper, Commander? Never, never mind, sir. Why, this door, it's unlocked. Unlocked? Now, don't take any fool chances, young fellow. The way I always did when I was your age. Stand to one side when you open that door. Let Cohen and O'Reilly take care of it. Good Lord. 
Edward, the control cabin is empty. There's nobody at the controls. You mean we're... We're flying without a pilot? Yes. See that stick move back and forth? As though a ghost had hold of it? Those crooks do. They set the automatic controls. It's a gyroscope attachment that keeps her steady. And then they must have bailed out. And what's going to happen to us? You see, Monica, the fact is... Go on, Sam. Tell me the truth. I'll know if you don't. Well, we'll go on until our gas runs out or until a storm hits us. Then we'll dive into the sea. It's as good a way of killing Mr. Naylor as any. I see, son. Have we got any chance at all? Frankly, I don't know. Wait till I get a look inside of that control cabin. Holy mother, that does. Owen, stop it. Stop it. Yeah, Mr. Naylor? Stop playing that infernal mouth organ. Because you must play it, play something cheerful. Yeah, sure, Mr. Naylor, sure. How long do you think it'll be before we... I have call him Mr. Commander back again. Well done, fella. The radio telephone's out of order. We can't signal. Fred, what about those patrol ships? You said they're 200 miles out to watch for unidentified aircraft. Won't they see us? They've seen us already, I expect. They'll send for an army fighter plane to investigate, but... Oh, what can it do? Yeah. Shoot us down, maybe, huh? That's fine. If only somebody could fly the plane. Well, nobody can, Skipper, so think of something else. See, Mr. Naylor, I was wrong. Wrong, son? About what? One of your party... And I can guess which one dropped a torn piece of paper. There was a line of writing on it, probably the end of some instructions. Well? Those instructions ended, you should land just as your fuel fails at 7 o'clock a.m. You should land just as your fuel fails at 7 o'clock a.m. But, but that might not have anything to do with the sun. What made you suspicious of it? Because it was written in German. In German? Quiet, Cohen, I can't hear myself think. Okay, okay, Mr. Naylor, I'm sorry. I thought the fake pilots were kidnapping you, maybe abroad. There's not enough fuel for that, is there? Well, if there's enough fuel for Los Angeles, then there's enough for Europe. Well, that won't work. They bailed out and left us to crash. Excuse me, sir, but it's getting black as pitch out there. I think there's a storm coming up. What happens when that hits us? Plenty, O'Reilly. Plenty. Yeah, well, I was afraid of that. If only somebody could fly this plane, I could navigate it. Navigate it? Yes. You have to learn aerial navigation in my business. With enough figuring, I might even set a new course and try the automatic controls on it. No, I, I don't dare handle the ship. Wait a minute. I know a way out of this. Well, then speak up, Liz. Is a 90-mile wind going to hit us any minute? The air hostess, of course. Miss Lee. What about her? I remember reading somewhere that most air hostesses get flying instructions when they've been with a company for a, well, a given length of time. You know, Miss Bale, that's true. There was a girl of Inter Airways who told me the same thing. And if this one can even make a try at landing a plane, well, we may get back to New York yet. I thought you said she'd been knocked out. Well, she isn't badly hurt, but there's just a chance that maybe she's... There's Shepard, coming back from the pantry. Anybody got a drink? Wasn't very pleasant back there. How is she? You know, we were just wondering whether Miss Lee might be in any shape to pilot the plane. Pilot the plane? Why in blazes should she pilot the plane? There's no time to explain now, Shepard. But we're bound for Davy Jones unless something's done. Could she do it? No. Not even if we, uh, revived her? Not if all the doctors on Earth stood at her side. Why, but I... I but... don't think you understand, sir. 
Miss Lee has just died. Partway back again, always racing forward on a flight to nowhere. Late afternoon, evening, night, the steady throbbing of motors like a pulse beat inside the head. Towards morning, the storm dies away. In that dim cabin, there is exhaustion of nerves. The hands of the clock stand at a quarter of two in the morning. Yes, for a couple of hours. Faith and Ben Quinn will sleep on the night before the execution. Where are the others? I was a boy back home in the county down. My father used to say to me, Riley O'Reilly, says he, did you ever see a banshee? A banshee, says he, is the old woman that lets you know when you're going to die. Right down, you two. Uh, oh, I, I'm sorry, Mr. Uh, no, uh, no offense, Kate. And the man say a quiet game of solitaire without somebody jacking all the time? Like nine on red dead. Listen, Monica, and listen carefully. My first idea was right after all. What are you talking about? There's somebody aboard this ship who can fly a plane. There is. I proved it by the automatic controls. Proved it how? If those controls had stayed as they originally were... The side winds would have blown us clear off our course. But we're still on our course. That shows that somebody's been sneaking in there and setting us right again when we do strike. Then you mean... I mean we're headed for somewhere. We're being taken somewhere. But we may outwit this gentleman yet. Outwit who? Did somebody take all these back there? I'm sorry, Mr. Naylor. Monica's just waked up. None of us can feel very much like sleeping anyway. All right, son. I admit it. Come up here and join me, will you? With pleasure. I think myself in this frightened card game. But I still can't make it come out. Oh, what's the use pretending anyway? We know we're in for it. It's this... <laughs> waiting to get you. Yeah. Yeah, that goes for all of us, Mr. Naylor. What I'm dreading is... is that when those motors choke and go dead. And we start whirling down... Down and down. What does it sound like, Commander, when when motors conk out? I've never heard it, Mr. Naylor, but I imagine it sounds like... Listen. I imagine it sounds like that. We're losing high. I can feel it. Well, Corn, I guess this is the payoff. Yeah, you said it. But look here, Mr. Naylor, we can't be out of fuel. Because it's too early. Look at the clock. It's only five minutes to two o'clock. I beg your pardon, old man. It's five minutes to seven o'clock. Seven o'clock. Crazy? No. Haven't you forgotten the cross-ocean changes in time? By George, the commander's right. European time is five hours ahead of our time. If you don't believe me, just notice that it's getting daylight outside. I was thinking of that message. You should land just as your fuel fails at 7 o'clock a.m. Stand perfectly still, all of you. Yeah, what got into little Lord Fauntleroy? I'll show you what's got into me, my friend. Yes, I rather thought you would. I shall go into that control cabin. Follow me if you like. I shall sit down at the control. 
and I shall bring this plane safely to the ground. Safely to the ground? Where? In Germany, of course. Germany? Don't pull a gun, Cohen. If you plug in, we're all done for. That is good advice, Mr. Cohen. I might add that we're getting closer to the ground every minute. Oh, for the love of Do I take control? Yes. Go ahead. But, uh, we're following you. Follow by all means. All right. Let's get comfortable here. I take up my position, so... There's fog below. Can you see? Well enough, Miss Davis. Well enough. We must go down rather quickly. And I can't help if it's somewhat rough on your ears. You young swine, what's the idea? The idea, dear patron, is to bring you and your plans for a submarine freighter to a country which will appreciate them. Then those two fake pilots... They were colleagues of mine. Unfortunately, if they remained, your pug uglies would have started a gunfight, and none of us might have got here. Well... So they left by territory. And I brought you safely without blood or toil into the boundaries of the Third Reich. You're going down too fast, man. Now take it easy. I am perfectly in command, thank you. Look out! The trees are coming straight up. Are you all right, Monica? Are you all right? Yes. Oh, only a bit shaken up. We're all okay here, Skipper. Shall I give this guy the works now before they come to get us? No, don't shoot. Let him alone. That also is good advice. And now, my friends, my mission is ended. I stand up on the pilot's stair. I throw open this glass hatch. And to all Germany, to all the world, I cry. This is such a stolen flugzeug in begriff to London our Feld number 21. Heil Hitler. Well, stretch me blind if it ain't another one. Yes, first Rudolf Essen, now this bloke. What do you suppose they want over there? English. Why are you speaking English? Why, Cocky? It's an even habit we've got in this country. This isn't England. Oh, yes, it is. Better climb out of here and with your hands up. But it can't be. I followed the course laid down on those instruments. Unfortunately, old man, I altered our course last night. Keep back, Shepard, or you may get a bullet in the head yet. Your instructions were all right, but they didn't tell you about the five hours difference in time. When we got to the right navigation point, I let the fuel out of the tanks. It made you think we were landing in Germany. <laughs> you know, there's nothing like having a good Nazi for a taxi driver, is there? <laughs> Starring Richard Dix with Gail Page and Montague Love. Tonight's tale of suspense. This is your narrator, the man in black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next Tuesday, same time, when Mr. Paul Lucas will star in the suspense play called Mr. Markham, Antique Dealer. Ladies and gentlemen, on the following Tuesday, May 18th, Mr. Charles Lawton and Miss Elsa Lanchester will be with us in one of the most famous of Agatha Christie's thrillers, The ABC Murders. William Spear, the producer, Ted Bliss, director, Lutz Luskin and Lucian Mahowick, the conductor and composer, and John Dixon Carr, the author, collaborated on tonight's Suspense.
This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Columbia's program, Suspense. Heading our starring Hollywood cast this evening is Mr. Paul Lucas. And with him are Miss Heather Angel and Mr. Bramwell Fletcher. Story by John Dixon Carr, dealing with strange, very strange happenings in a London curio shop and called Mr. Markham, antique dealer, is tonight's tale of suspense. If you've been with us on these Tuesday nights, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series are tales calculated to intrigue you, stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation and then withhold the solution till the last possible moment. And so, with the performances of Heather Angel, Ramwell Fletcher, Paul Lucas as Mr. Markham, antique dealer, we again hope to keep you in suspense. murder and get away with it. Does the idea shock you? Do you believe that justice must always be done? But let's be honest with ourselves. You and I needn't be cynics to know that justice is very seldom done. Innocence flinches. Guilt is childlike and bland. Innocence is imposed upon. Guilt can impass, encompass all things, even a successful murder. And I know this because I was the murderer, you say? <laughs> oh, no. Inquire at Scotland Yard. I was the victim. In Bond Street, not far from Piccadilly, there used to be an establishment, which in a less fashionable part of town would have been called a shop. On the windows, in letters as discreet as a visiting card, were the words, Charles Markham, antique dealer. Such a delightful fellow, Markham. Such a character. Thirty years ago, yes, as long as that, this antique shop was a dingy place, despite deep carpets and crystal chandeliers. It rustled with the ticking of a hundred clocks. It was shadowed by damascened armor and the loom of tall tapestries. And late one summer night, when the shutters were long closed on those windows, a four-wheeler drew up before the door in the ghastly street. That's all, Cabby. You needn't wait. Very good, miss. Good night. Good night. He must be here. He must be. I won't go back to that place. I'll kill myself first. Oh, look here, old man. You needn't be... Oh, I beg your pardon. And I beg yours. I'm 
I'm not the person you were expecting, am I? No, madam. As a matter of fact, I was expecting a police officer. A police officer? Oh, merely an old friend who often drops in for a talk and a drink. You are Mr. Markham, aren't you? Yes, my name is Markham. Can I be of any service to you? I want to come in. I... I... Uh, I want to buy a present for somebody. Now, really, madam, this is hardly the time. Yes, I... I know it's late, but... It's nearly one o'clock, madam. Surely tomorrow morning will be... That'll be too late. This is a special occasion. It's... It's uh, a birthday present. That's it. A birthday present. I've got to deliver it before breakfast. And, uh, Sir George Lytle says this is the only place in London to buy antiques. Oh, Sir George flatters me. Won't you let me come in? Just for five minutes. Well... Under the circumstances, madam, I think it might be managed. Now, one moment while I put some lights on. No, please. That one little light will be enough. But you won't be able to see anything. That doesn't matter. I'll trust to your judgment. Just as you like. This way, madam. What's that? That noise? Oh, you mean the clocks, madam? <laughs> there are more than a hundred clocks in this room. I'm very fond of them. Don't they get on your nerves? Ticking away together like a nightmare? Striking the hours together? They don't strike together, madam. When the hour approaches, you will hear a musical din that lasts for some time. Might I interest you perhaps in a clock? No. I hate them. <laughs> now, all the same, this grandfather clock might amuse you. What about it? Observe the signature. Johannes Gutkarver, Landini, Facet A.B., 1752. Uh, you could see better, madam, if you raise that veil. I'll keep my veil down, thank you. Well, just as you please. But look at the clock. I open the glass face like this. Then I push the second hand forward like this and... John Carver, anticipating Mr. Edison's gramophone by more than a hundred years. Oh, but you don't like clocks. No. Uh, may I ask whether the present is for a lady or a gentleman? It's uh, for a man. Oh, has he some knowledge of antiques? Yes. Uh, I mean... Uh, furniture, perhaps. Porcelain, bronzes, tapestries, weapons. He might be very much interested in weapons. Uh, then yes. I imagine his name is Mr. Ronald Gilbert. Now, will you tell me, Miss Ray, why you really came here tonight? So you know who I am. Naturally. You are Miss Judith Ray. And why did you come here? I wanted to see what sort of a man you actually were. Oh, and have you found out? No, but... But I won't go back to prison. I won't. As you will. But since it's to be a business conference, Miss Ray, and I imagine it is... Yes. Well, then suppose we go into my office, here at the back of the shop. Will you proceed me? Thank you. Oh, you must excuse the dust covers I've put on the chairs here. I'm leaving for a holiday tomorrow, and the shop will be closed. When I return next week, Miss Ray, I shall expect the amount requested. In cash, of course. But I can't raise 2,000 pounds. You ought to know that. Well, your fiancé could raise the money, I imagine. Ron? Do you think I'd have Ron know where I've been? Or what I've been? It's better than having his father learn it, surely. Now, sit down, Miss Ray. I'd rather stand, thank you. Now, that's a very foolish gesture. But the ladies will do it. They think it gives them dignity and shows the disdain of the poor blackmailer. You see, 
I make no bones about it. I am a blackmailer. You seem rather proud of yourself. Why not? I am the one person in England, perhaps in the world, who has made it a large-scale business. Congratulations. <laughs> and what is all life but, but blackmail? The child says, if you don't give me that, I'll scream. The grown woman says, if you go on behaving like this, I will leave you. Your sex, Miss Ray, are blackmailers from the cradle. You know, Charles Markham, my wonder... Yes? I wonder if anybody's ever hurt you very much. Hurt me? What do you mean? When you talk about the world and people in general, your face goes white under the eyes. You pick up that letter opener from the desk. Not a letter opener, please, Miss Ray. A Medici dagger. 16th century work. It isn't the money that really interests you. I don't understand. You hate the world. You just want to torture people. But you think you've been tortured, isn't that so? This is a very sharp dagger, Miss Ray. If I throw it down on the desk, it sticks like that. Isn't it so, Charles Markham? My motives, Miss Ray, aren't in question. I wonder... Whereas your motives are. Now, let me see. Ten years ago, in 1903, a certain girl called Letty Wilson, your real name, I believe, fell in love with a rather contemptible underworld character named Arthur Aker. Please! No humiliation was too great for her. She worked for him, lied for him, stole for him. I was only 18. I didn't know what I was now, doing. this girl, for a very shabby theft, was sentenced to three years' hard labor at Holloway Prison. Five months later, she escapes from prison and disappears. All these years afterwards, she appears in the West End as Miss Judith Ray, fashionable milliner. Haven't I made up for it? Haven't I? No. For one mistake. After ten years. The way of the world, my dear. I didn't create it. And I'm forgetting the best part of the comedy. This paragon of virtue next falls in love with Mr. Ronald Gilbert, son of Major General Sir Edmund Gilbert. Such a respectable family, too. Stop it, please. Then, shall we say... £2,000. Suppose I did raise the money. I don't know how, but suppose I did raise it. Well? What guarantee would I have that you wouldn't ask for still more money? I probably shall ask for more money, Miss Ray. But that's my privilege as a blackmailer. Then... Then I'm never going to be free of you. Is that it? Well, frankly, that's it. Ah. Unless I kill you, of course. What if I did kill you? <laughs> People have threatened it before. But they haven't meant it. Maybe I mean it. Well, we can easily test you out. There's a sharp knife stuck in the desk in front of you. I'm going to get up and deliberately turn my back on you. Like this. Be careful, Charles Markham. As a student of human nature, I'm curious. How much will you risk to keep the secret? Have you the courage to kill and risk hanging? Yes. I think I have. What was that? Now, aren't you glad you held back at the last moment, Miss Ray? I said, what was that? That, my dear, was the front doorbell. Probably my friend, Inspector Ross, from Wigmore Street Police Station. Come in, old man. Come on in. Make yourself comfortable. I'll be with you in a moment. You wanted me to attack you, didn't you? No, I was merely curious. And in any case, Miss Ray, it would be useless to kill me. Useless? Why? Because I shouldn't die. Don't talk rot. Oh, it's quite true. A man in my position must take uh, certain precautions. If you killed me, I should be back to haunt you within half an hour. And I don't happen to be joking. Come in. Now, look here, Martha. I... Good Lord, Judith. Ron. Mr. Ronald Gilbert, as I live. Ron, what are you doing here? He hasn't got anything against you, has he? Speak up, Mr. Gilbert. Have I? The fact is, Judith, I... I... 
Look at him, Miss Ray. See how he changes color and twists his mustache and altogether resembles a boy caught in his mother's gem cupboard. Perfect picture of a gentleman being a gentleman. Look here, Markham. I'm not very clever. You can always make a fool of me when you start talking. So let's stop talking. I've brought the money. What money? Oh, merely my fee for keeping quiet about you. So you went to Ron, too. You told him about it. Naturally. If possible, always sell your wares in two markets. How much money? Never mind you, this. I hoped I could do this without your knowing. How much money? Three thousand. It's all I could raise. Has he... Has he told you who I am? And what I've been. Look here, Judith. Who the devil cares who you are or what you've been? I happen to be in love with you. I... Never mind. Let's get out of here. Ron, it's no good. He'll only come back for more money. I know that, but what else can we do? Nothing, I'm afraid. Well, what's that knife doing there stuck in the desk? Nothing dangerous, I assure you. No? Merely a curio. I pick it up like this, I flip it down like this. And pick it up again. Miss Ray was very much interested in the dagger. Now, may I have that envelope with the money, please? There you are. Take it. Thank you. As I explained to Miss Ray, I'm leaving tomorrow for a holiday. Hence the general disarray and the dust covers on the chairs. But before my departure, I'm glad we could settle this affair, as you would say, like gentlemen. Before we clear out of here, Markham, there's just one favor I'd like to ask. Well, of course, old men, ask away. This is your job, I suppose. You can't help being what you are. But never again, as long as you live... Well? Never even say the word, gentlemen. Be careful, Ron. Look at his face. Tell me, Mr. Gilbert... How much money is in this envelope? You heard what I said, 3,000 pounds. Then take it back, my friend. I find we can't strike a bargain after all. What do you mean? Just what I say. Here is your money. You will now oblige me, both you and Miss Ray, by leaving my shop. But what are you going to do? Tomorrow morning, perhaps even tonight, I'm going to get in touch with the police. And I shall tell them where they can find Letty Wilson, alias Judith Ray. You can't do that, Markham. Oh, yes, he can. You hit him where it hurts. 3,000 pounds, my friend, is not enough compensation for the way you talk. There is a way through the shop. Shall I escort you to the front door? No. Oh, so you prefer to stay here and make a fool of yourself? You're not going to tell the police, Markham. I promise you that. And how are you going to stop me? With this. No, put that gun away. That's a funny thing, Judith. I felt a bit of a fool, you know, bringing this revolver along. But now I've got a use for it. Oh, I've got a use for it. Oh. Maybe the best thing would be to go into the street now and call a policeman. You will never get into the street, Markham. Are you following me into the shop? Yes. So both of you, it appears, came here under false pretenses. You said you wanted to pay me some money. The money's still here, but you've lost your chance to and get it. And your our dear Judith said she wanted to buy a present for you. I showed her this grandfather clock here, this talking clock. Don't go step beyond that clock, Markham. I warn you. Nonsense, old man. You wouldn't dare shoot. Wouldn't I? No, and I'll call your bluff. One step. Two steps. I know your whole silly pride, my friend. You wouldn't risk it. No, you wouldn't. What's happening to me? Don't try and grab out of the clock, Markham. It won't save you. You wouldn't risk your life. You wouldn't risk your family position. You... You wouldn't do it. 115 Adolf's well. 115 Adolf's well. I have to do it, Judith. Don't you see? I have to do it. Did you... Did he... Oh, yes. Yes, he's done for. I tell you, I have to do it. Shh. Keep your voice down. Why? 
That shot sounded like the crack of doom. I wonder if anybody in the street heard it. You mean the police? Yes, John. What in heaven's name are we going to do? Steady, steady. We'll find a way out. Maybe he's not dead, Ron. Go and look at him. He's dead, all right. Please, Ron. Go and look at him. Well? Shot through the heart. The bullet went clean through him and smashed the face of the grandfather clock. That's all I can see in this dim light. This isn't happening to us. It, it can't be I've happening. I've got to think, but it's hard to think. You see, Judith, I'm not in a rage any longer. I'm just numb and, and a little bit scared. You're not going to give yourself up. And have this whole thing made public? Not likely. Wait a minute. There may be a way out. What way? He said he was going for a holiday. Remember? Well, suppose he did. That gives us time. It means his absence won't be noticed. The shop will be closed. Nobody will come here for days. And certainly nobody will come here tonight. And... What's that? The police officer. I forgot the police officer. What police officer? A friend of Markham. Inspector somebody or other from Wigmore Street. He's inspected here tonight. Then, then we're finished. No, Ronnie. We're not finished. He can't see anything out there. The shutters are down and the door is covered. Could you... Could you pick Markham up and carry him? Yes, yes, I could. Why? There must be a back way out of the shop, probably in the office. Hurry, Ron. I don't like to touch him. Hurry, Ron, please. He's as heavy as a sack of meal. He seems to be looking straight at me. I know. Everything here seems to have eyes and move a little in the shadows. Didn't you see the expression in Markham's eyes just before you... No, no, I, I didn't. He seemed to be looking behind us. Oh, beyond us. I don't know how to describe it. And he said something, too, that scared me. He, he said he couldn't die. He, he said... Close the door, quick. This police officer, Judith, he can't get into the shop, can he? Of course he can. The front door isn't locked. That's true. What's wrong with me, Judith? I came in the, that way myself. And there's no time to lock the front door now. Our only hope is through the back way. I thought I'd seen a back door and... Ah, there it is. Just a minute. I've, I've killed a man. That means I'm a murderer. A fraction of a second. One tick of a clock in there. And you change from an ordinary happy person into... Into what I... Well, Judith, well... I'm sorry, Ron. The door's locked. Isn't there a key? No. Maybe in his pockets on a key ring. There isn't time, Ron. I think I... I heard the front door open. Our visitor's coming in. I've got it. The dust covers. What? Those white cloths that, that cover, that fit over the chairs. Look at them. What on earth are you talking about? We used to play a game when we were kids. Somebody sits in a big chair, you know. You, you, you fit the dust cover over him and, and, and nobody can tell he's sitting there. Don't you see, Judith? That's how we can hide Markham's body. It might work if there's time. There's got to be time. Take the big cover off that chair, the wing chair. All right. Maybe there's a chance. I'll fit him into it. Arms along the chair arms. Feet push back. Now... Put the cover back again and, and pull it round down his feet. Don't let it touch his chest. The blood will show through. There. That's got it. You can't see anything now, can you? No, but... Ron. Well? What did you do with the gun? The gun? The gun you shot Markham with. Oh. Well, Judith, I put it down on the floor when I picked up his body. Out in the other room? Yes, yes, I'm afraid so. Uh, and it's too late now, Judith. The police are here. What are you going to say? I, I don't know. Trust your wits and try and brazen it out. Yes? Come in. Good evening, Miss Ray. And good evening, Mr. Gilbert. Charles Markham. 
You're Charles Markham. Correct, Miss Ray. But why should that surprise you? Why do you look as though you were seeing a ghost? Because we are seeing a ghost. If you're Charles Markham, whose body is... Judith, be careful. Body, Miss Ray. Did you say body? Miss Ray's upset. She doesn't know what she's talking about. If you killed me, I should be back to haunt you within half an hour. That's what he said. I tell you, Miss Ray isn't herself. She, she, she had bad news today. A relative of hers died. I, I, I've been trying to make her feel better. Indeed. Do you think uh, it would make her feel better to bring her here? I, I don't understand. My dear sir, you are very welcome. But the situation is surely a little odd. I come in here and find you two looking as guilty as a pair of murderers if in my private office in the middle of the night. There's nothing odd about that. I, I wanted to buy Judith something. At one o'clock in the morning? Yes. Why not? Well, may I ask how you managed to get in? The front door was open. We just walked in. If you wish to buy something, why not stay in the showroom? Why come to my office? Well, hang it all. You don't think I we, we wanted to steal anything, do you? Well, that thought did occur to me. You see, there was nobody else here. There's nobody here, Mr. Markham. Not a living soul. Then you didn't meet, by any chance, my brother? Your... Your brother? Yes, my brother Robert. You couldn't have mistaken him if you had seen him. He looks so much like me that few people can tell us apart. Oh, so that's it. Poor Robert often deputizes for me. He's learned to act like me, think like me, and talk like me. But he doesn't like the work very much. Of course, you know what my work really is. Is, is this part of the game? Are you, are you trying to play cat and mouse? Robert is an idealist. He thinks, poor fellow, that my profession is beneath contempt. But he acts the part and acts it well because I pay him. And I find it useful to have a double who will run risks for me. What have you done with his body? We, we haven't done anything with him. If you've killed Robert, my friend, you've committed a totally useless murder. You don't see him here, do you? No, but I see his handiwork. Meaning what? I've warned him many times about throwing a knife down on a polished desktop. Those scratches on the desk are fresh scratches. Of course, if you give me your word of honor that he's not here... Of course, he, he's not here. Well, in that case, all we can do is sit down and make ourselves comfortable. Will you sit there, Mr. Gilbert, and you, Miss Ray, uh, in that wing chair by the window? What's wrong, Miss Ray? Why don't you sit down? Because I... I prefer to stand, thank you. Then perhaps you won't mind if I sit in the wing chair. It's a very comfortable one. My brother always don't, says... Don't sit down there for the night. Oh. <laughs> so that's it. Yes. That's it. It is rather a thick chair. I press against the dust cover and blood comes through. I lift the bottom of the dust cover and... What's the use of going on with this? I killed him. You admit that? Yes, I admit it. But Judith had nothing to do with this. I swear she hadn't. My telephone, you notice, is against the wall. I shall have to turn my back to you when I ring. Ring? Where? Bigmore Street Police Station. Oh, no. Give him a chance. Please give him a chance. Hello? Hello, operator. I want Regent 0586. I won't let them take you on. I won't. No good, Judith. I killed a man. I meant to kill him. That's all there is to it. A very sensible attitude, my friend. And if the lady has any idea of flying at me with that knife, just notice what I've got here. A thirty-two revolver. One chamber fired. Picked up of the floor in that room where... Hello? Uh... Hello? Wickmore Street Police Station. For the last time, Hello? Mr. Markham, won't you give him a chance? Be quiet, Miss Ray. May I speak to Inspector Ross, please? Inspector Ross speaking. Now, isn't that Mr. Markham? 
Got it in one, Inspector. Uh, Charles Markham here. I understand you were going to drop in and see me tonight. I intended to, Mr. Markham, but I'm afraid I can't make it now. Oh, why not? Anything wrong? Only a robbery in Davies Street, but it's likely to be a long job. Sorry I can't get there. Well, that's perfectly all right, Inspector, because actually I rang up to make sure you wouldn't come here tonight. You see, I've got a lot of work to do, and I'm leaving for Eastbourne early tomorrow morning. Let's make it some other time, shall we? Oh, glad to, Mr. No, Inspector. It's as quiet as a grave. I've never known a more peaceful night. Goodbye. Why did you do that? Now, please, don't excite yourself, Miss Ray. Didn't you hear what I told the Inspector? Yes, but... Is this some more trickery? Trickery? How can it be? I don't know. That's what I'm asking you. I should call it generous when I let my poor brother's death go unavenged. You're not doing this without a reason. Naturally not. But has it occurred to you, either of you, that it, I might not want my business dealings revealed in court? What are you driving at? And has it also occurred to you that a man's double, who looks exactly like him and shares all his secrets, may become a danger rather than an asset? He knows too much. He wants too much, and so... I think I understand. You're glad he's dead. Not glad, my dear. You shut my brotherly feelings, but definitely relieved. Look here, you can't get away with this. Get away with it, sir? Aren't you forgetting that you are the murderer? Then what are you going to do? That is very simple. We three, in an unholy partnership, will dispose of Robert's body. Or would you rather hang? He's got us wrong. There's no other way. But how can we dispose of the body? This seems worse than killing him. It's filthy, cold-blooded... Practical necessity. And as for disposing of the body, nothing is easier. We shall simply gather the... And so, as I said before, this is the story of a man who commits murder and gets away with it. Now, Ronald Gilbert looks back across the years and is still firmly convinced of his own guilt. But, of course, Gilbert never shot anybody. I was the man who committed the murder. Don't you remember? The bullet that killed my brother is supposed to have passed through his body and smashed the face of the grandfather clock. But that's an impossibility. The face of a grandfather clock is much higher than the heart of a man. You see, two shots were fired at the very same instant. Gilbert missed and smashed the clock face. I fired from the door of the office and did not miss. That was why my brother looked past those two. I went out by the back door, locked it, and reappeared at the front afterwards. It was not Robert Markham who died. I am Robert Markham. It was Charles who died that night. And I killed him to stop forever the wholesale blackmail that was poisoning the lives and blasting the hearts of a thousand half-crazed people. His records are destroyed. His correspondence are burned. He is dead and gone. I have assumed his name and identity ever since. I committed a murder. And yet, if you sat on a jury, dare you say that you would condemn me? Come now. Would you? And so closes Mr. Markham, Antique Dealer, starring Paul Lucas with Heather Angel and Bramwell Fletcher. Tonight's tale of... Suspense. 
This is your narrator, the man in black who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next Tuesday when we will have the pleasure of bringing you Mr. Charles Lawton and Miss Elsa Lanchester will star in one of the most famous and suspenseful of Agatha Christie's thrillers, The ABC Murders. The producer of these broadcasts is William Spear, with Ted Bliss, the director, Lud Gluskin, and Lucian Morrowick, conductor and composer, and John Dixon Carr, the author, collaborated on tonight's Suspense. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs>